Welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a movie podcast. I'm Autumn, and I'm joined as always by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. And we watch movies. We watch a shit ton of movies. Yeah. Um, especially me. Especially you. Honestly, for two weeks, I could have watched more. Um, we're going to start by me briefly talking about the worst movie that either of us watched, Moonraker. Yeah. And really, if people want to hear you talk about this, they should... Well... They don't have to do five dollars for this one. Yes, this one, um, due to uh, clerical error, um, is available to all our patrons. One dollar, five dollars, ten thousand um, dollars, whatever you want to give, we will take it, and yeah. you will get Moonraker in exchange. Um, if you do ten thousand dollars a month, bless you. <laughs> <laughs> You're still just getting the $5 a month uh, tier <laughs> rewards, but bless you. Um, yeah. Mostly, this is just on here. So I, to, I want you to give me a stairwell rating. Yes. Um, so, stairwells, because I did not talk about this in the episode, obviously, in the Pop Town Funk. Um, maddening movie for stairwells. Mm-hmm. It drove me fucking insane. There are many action sequences where one can see stairs, there are sometimes action sequences where one might see a shot of Roger Moore starting to go up the stairs and then a cut to him at the top of the stairs. Mm. But there's really no, like, the stairs are all just kind of there. They they kind of just exist. And, like, sometimes there's, like, a couple of them that I'm like, oh, those are cool-looking stairs. I hope someone, like, utilizes them in this sword fighting scene we're having no i guess not yeah i guess we're just looking at those stairs are we still following the rules though of there were stairs in it so it's like a d minus well so here's the thing or were you so mad at this movie that you can't yeah one i was so mad at this movie generally and two i was mad at being consistently disappointed you know like like 
not only like like sure there were stairs there, but you got my hopes up and dashed them time and time again. Yeah. To where this has to be an F. Okay. Got my hopes up and dashed them time and time again is kind of the experience of the first 30 minutes of Moonraker before you're just like, oh, I'm just watching a bad movie, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) You like keep, oh, is this movie going to start being fun? No, it's not. It's just going to be miserable. (laughs) Um, That's it for Moonraker. That's it. I never have to think about it again. Um, I, and I think this was like literally the next night or something after we recorded last episode. It was mm-hmm. soon after. Um, I wanted to watch a movie with Emily. She was like, oh, whatever you want to watch, it's fine. And I was like, okay, I've been, since we're doing like a musical next, I want to try and watch like a bunch of musicals. So there's this like Judy Garland collection. Do you mm. want to watch like a Judy Garland musical with me? I hear like Summerstock is really good. And Emily's like, mm. and then I'm like, or we could maybe watch a Jackie Chan movie. And she was like, mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> so well, um, at first I went and tried to put on one from that. Cause we, I had Criterion open already. Mm-hmm. And from the, there's like starring Jackie Chan collection. Yeah. Um, but I think all of those are like in Chinese. Yeah. In Chinese. Um, they're all, Hong Kong productions, mm-hmm. which is going to be generally the better Jackie Chan. Um, but she was doing a bunch of quilting, which means she can't like look at the screen all the time. Um, so she just didn't want to have to try and read subtitles and then also follow action while also quilting. Yeah. Um, and I was like, that's fair. So I pulled up um, HBO Max and I was like, okay, if we like look for Jackie Chan movies here, there's a very high chance it's going to be in English. Mm-hmm. It's probably not going to be a Hong Kong production, but that's fine. Right. Um, and so the main ones that we found, we've already watched all the Rush Hour. Mm-hmm. So the other one that we saw was The Accidental Spy. And for some reason, I had always assumed, I had never seen The Accidental Spy before. And I had always assumed that it was a U.S. production because I think it was a co-production. Mm-hmm. Like, Miramax is like one of the main producers and, you know... The horrible Weinstein's are on right. production and stuff, and so like I had that context, and the poster feels like a very American Jackie Chan poster. Mm. Um, that's just the one that you see all the time when you look for the American Spy. But I was like, okay, it's going to be in English. Put it on. It was in English, but immediately the action was great, and there was the like opening credits, and I was like, there's like a there's a bunch of Chinese names on this like crew. Mm-hmm. There's like that editor like action director choreographer Mm -hmm. like various other people and i was like what's going on here it's so incredible um this is just like a hong kong one um and so i looked it up and it was primarily made in hong kong but specifically geared towards being like an international one Mm. and so the version that we watched which i don't know if that's the same that i doubt it's the same one that would be in um if, like, they were watching it in Hong Kong or whatever. Right. Um, but that one had, like, full dubbed over basically everything. Um, even the early scenes that are entirely set in... Um, I forget if it is Hong Kong or China that the um, intro action happens in. Uh, but then Jackie Chan travels to be a spy and goes to other countries, and it basically just becomes an excuse to have everyone speaking English, even though you have... 
people from all over because it's just, you know, English becomes the default when you have lots of people who speak lots of different languages because um, of colonialism. Right. So, um, but yeah, we watched it and it was, I mean, they're, they're definitely better Jackie Chan movies, but also I fucking love Jackie Chan a lot. Yeah. And there's some great action scenes. Um, Mid Jackie Chan is still a pretty good. Yeah, movie. I think I still gave it five stars, even though it was not the best Jackie Chan movie I've ever seen. Because Jackie Chan really has to be missing for me to go low with <laughs> with star ratings. Um, like Rush Hour might be some of the lowest that it goes. Um, I still enjoyed those movies. Um, but yeah, like there's a a fight scene early on that uses defibrillators. Um, for like weapon in it it's fucking great uh there's like some good funny bits with it um the best part though is there's a part where um so he's like at like a spa or something and people are coming in trying to kill him and so he is wearing a bathrobe and like running through the building gets up on the rooftop um has three umbrellas that he uses as like a parachute to then jump like three like three stories easily, oh maybe four God. stories. Um, and I, I don't think that there's like a line or something. I think he's literally, this is Jackie Chan. I think he's just literally jumping with these umbrellas, um, onto the ground. And you're like seeing him land on the ground. It's not like there's like a bed there for him to land on, you know, oh uh, it's fucking nuts. While, and remember while wearing nothing but a bathrobe, then after he lands, shortly after he, or not a bathroom, just like a towel around his waist. Shortly after he loses the towel and the rest of the action scene, he is fucking naked and running around trying to cover his like ass and penis with like, you know, various <laughs> objects that he's grabbing while also like getting into fights. So he's like kicking a lot or sometimes like the, I don't know, like the choreography for this is intense because sometimes it becomes like the like Austin Powers thing of there's a thing placed here that's now going to block Jackie Chan's junk while he then lifts the plate up to like whack someone in the head. <laughs> I don't like the the logistics involved in, in having this like <laughs> Jackie Chan is naked where you do briefly see it just his full ass, but mm. um you never see his like penis flopping around. Yeah. <laughs> just to be clear. Um, well this is I noticed that it's, it's highly influenced or it's it's highly suggested that people do. It's um I noticed in the spreadsheet that this is two thousand one, which feels like Jackie at the height of his perfectionist weirdo powers. Yeah. I don't know about the height of his powers, but definitely the height of his we're fucking doing it this way or we're not fucking doing it. <laughs> well it's the thing of like you watch like police story and so much more of it is like they really almost killed this man. Yeah. He almost killed himself <laughs> because he's the director of this and he's like deciding on this shit. Yeah. Um, this one, you can tell that he's older because some of it is a little less death defined. There is still a part, but there's like a support thing. But he does jump off of a like really high bridge and like swing down holding onto a cloth. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also like a support thing. Um, some of the, the NGs at the end are about like, they had too much slack on that. And so it was harder for him to like, keep on to the, anyway, um, they blow up a truck. It's fucking great. Um, but yeah, it is like the height of just like, we're going to do fucking ridiculous sets, mm -hmm. like set pieces. We're going to do like ridiculous. Like this whole choreography is just funny and like, but also in great action mm -hmm. at the same time. So, 
Um, we had an absolute blast. Um, it was also funny because, uh, you know, Emily's just been watching a whole bunch of MCU and it's at the point where I just can't even really follow mm-hmm. most of it. Um, so part of this was just like, you just keep watching the M- MCU and I just put in my headphones mm-hmm. and I'm like in my little world. Uh, cause I just can't even follow this anymore and I'm not that big of a fan, but I know that you love the MCU. So I'm not going to like tell you, you can't watch it on TV, but I want to have one night where we watch something together. <clears throat> um, and we watched the accidental spy and at the end I was like, okay, like how did that compare mm-hmm. to the MCU? And I just went, that was so much better. <laughs> and I was like, uh, why aren't we just watching Jackie Chan all the time? But, um, yeah. I recommend it. It was, Stairs? I was surprised. I thought it was bad. Oh, um, no, I thought it was bad. I thought it was going to be bad. I thought it was going to be a American production. Right. Not understanding how to edit it stuff. Right. Um, stairs I give an A plus to. The main set of stairs is, um, it's, so you see this just, like, absolutely ornate, like, intense stairwell, and I was like, oh, man, Jackie Chan better walk down it Mm -hmm. in the scene, because clearly he's, like, leaving now. And it's one of those where, like, the stairs are going around in a circle, and then down the middle of the circle there's an elevator, and it's, like, a kind of, like, there's gates, but it's, like, closed but with, like, iron rot work, basically. It's not even, like, glass. It's, like, this is, like, metal box that you're in that's also really ornate. And he gets in the elevator, and I was like, oh, no, he's not going to go down the stairs. He's going down the elevator, and then he sees, like, the woman who becomes really important for, like, the rest of the movie walking down the stairs, and there's, like, dramatic, like, him seeing her and everything while he's in the elevator and she's going down Mm. the stairs. And I was like, Oh my God, this is both like a great stairwell (laughs) scene and a great elevator scene at the same time. So I gave it an, uh, I thought for a second you were going to say he jumps out of the elevator. No, that would be fucking great. Um, (laughs) I feel like there are a few other stairs that came up, but that's like the, the scene. Yeah. Um, I gave it an A plus. I can maybe be talked up to an S, but you haven't seen it. So yeah. Um, I feel like it needed just like a little bit more of like being really, really central to something, but mm-hmm. you still does see like the main woman for the, the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, continuing on with our little Asian cinema corner here. Um, so I watched, um, uh, Shao Wu or Pickpocket. I'm probably, um, it's sometimes distributed, internationally as Shawu, sometimes I think originally as Pickpocket. I will probably continue to refer to it as Pickpocket because um, I trust my ability to pronounce that better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it is the debut film of uh, Jia Shenge, um, who I think is most famous for directing A Touch of Sin, which is like... I don't really know what it is, only that it is like if you look up a list of best Chinese movies, it is consistently in the top ten. It is a yeah. beloved film. Um, this is different from A Touch of Zen, which is also consistently in those top ten lists. <laughs> um, but uh, Pickpocket, um, it was. I was having one of those nights where I'm like, scrolling through streaming services, couldn't see anything, and I just hit a point where I'm like, okay, the next thing that looks even halfway interesting, I'm going to click it. And I, like, recognized that director's name because um, A Touch of Sin was, like, in the back of my head. It's like, oh, I want to watch that. I recognized this director's name, clicked it, put it on. Fucking phenomenal movie. Holy yeah. shit. 
Um, I think you'd really like it. Um, definitely, um, reminds me a lot of, like, as I was watching, my mind went to, like, the early films of Martin Scorsese or, like, um, like, Slacker or, or Clerks, even, Mm -hmm. um, taking a couple days to think on it, like, obviously, Rebels of the Neon God comes up, too, in my head, which is... You might be saying, Autumn, these movies have nothing in common. The thing that ties them together is, like, in my mind, is, like, young filmmaker, um, like, kind of just starts shooting, may or may not have a script. Like, the the movie, like, prominently says at the, at the end, like, these are all non-professional actors, like, um, and they're all playing characters, but, like, it's kind of just, like, Here's what it was like to grow up in my, like, small town part of China, you know? Um, I'm not sure, like, what part of China that this movie is taking place in, Um, but it is a small town, you know? I was was looking to make sure that I was remembering the town. She's got to have it. It's kind of like... Oh, yeah, totally. That's same vein. Yeah, do the right thing. She's got to have it totally, like, in this, like, space, too. Uh, um, And, yeah, just, like... Very small town, um, and, like, it's, like, one of those things where, like, you know, um, the, the main character, Shawu, is, is this, um, like, I I think he, like, wants to, he, I think he sees himself as a triad, and he sees the guys he hangs out with as triads, but they, they're just pickpockets, you know? He literally is just, like, going into, like, the bigger city nearby, like, taking a bus over there. And just, like, pickpocketing shit off people and going home, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, You're setting me up so well for Yakuza Gurren Tai next. <laughs> um, and so, it's a really it's a really interesting movie. It has, like, a bunch of different, like... In the first 30 minutes, there's this conflict because this guy he used to be friends with um, is, like, getting married tomorrow. And it's sort of, like, you know he's not invited to the wedding and he's feeling bad about how he and this guy aren't friends anymore. There's a lot of different conflicts that come up because of this. And then after that, it sort of pivots into being this like romance movie. And then after that, it like pivots into like being a familial movie and all of these turns all feel so natural in a way that is just like shocking. Like I just would not think that like such a young filmmaker could make this movie that is kind of like, three different movies but all fit so cohesively like well together um it it looks really good both in the sense of like it's well shot and also like on the channel like it the movie is shot in 16 millimeter and they have this like 4k restoration of it which just looks fucking fabulous (laughs) um really 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 was like bowled over by this movie um uh Probably my favorite part is the middle section where it is like he's feeling bummed out about like his best friend um, and uh, like just meets like the next day, like meets this girl and just like gets a crush on it, gets a crush on her. And you see like, you know, this is like the next like 30, 40 minutes of the movie is like their like relationship. And I won't spoil any of that, but really just really love that movie. Um, Yeah. Um, as far as stairs goes, stairs go, um, oh, that's why I was bringing up the middle part of the movie, is that, um, there's a couple okay stairs, 
But then my favorite scene in the movie, which is um, like him and this girl have an argument and then like go and hang out afterward, basically. Like, oh, we mm-hmm. had this argument, but um, like we're hanging out after the argument um, and, and stairs feature in that scene because he's like jokingly being like, oh, well, if you don't want to like if you're going to be like that, I'm going to walk up these stairs and there's like. He walks up the stairs and it's like a sidewalk that's just going right above her, basically. And that's the joke is that he's like not actually going away, that he's just like directly above. It's <laughs> just a silly, silly little scene that features some stairs. I gave it a B minus. So really, really love that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, excited to see more of excited to see more of that director's move, films and also um, like doing a quick glance at Wikipedia. This character is going to show up. One, this actor is going to show up in most of his films, and sometimes, again, is the same character, sometimes not. I guess in that way it is kind of similar to um, Simon Long's like relationship with um, the actor who appears in all of his films. Yeah. Just at a glance, anyway. So. Um, shall we go next? Yeah. So I watched Yakuza Garantai, uh, which... Yeah, because uh, in the posters and stuff, it's usually, and in the movie, is written with the, the numbers 893, mm-hmm. which is what Yakuza means. Like, mm-hmm. those three letters, <clears throat> those three numbers, um, which are losing hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, basically, Yakuza means kind of someone who's been dealt a losing hand mm-hmm. or a loser. <laughs> yeah. This um, is kind of like, I was thinking about this as like... The the guy like definitely sees himself as a triad. He's got himself a sick tattoo, but like he's kind of just a bum. <laughs> yeah. Um and this is definitely emphasizing that like these are kind of the losers. Uh-huh. Uh and so Gurantai means hooligans. And so the the I don't think this has ever been officially brought over to the US, but when I've seen it translated, people do a direct translation of Yakuza Hooligans. Mm-hmm. Um and that's basically just what like eight nine three Gurantai means. Mm-hmm. Um this is incredibly hard to find. If anyone's listening to this podcast and they would like to watch this movie, let me know and I'm able to hook you up. But like, I had to get it through a friend of a friend mm-hmm. because it's like not even on like torrent sites. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I first watched it uh, in the Yakuza course that I took, and it was one of my favorites. Um, it's coming before, like, the Jutsuroku stuff of Battles Without. So this is fully in that, like, Ninkyo Ega era where it's just all about, like, you know, having a boss and how much having a boss sucks and, like, extremely melodramatic, like, I have to kill my sworn brother or whatever. This is doing a little bit of it, but it's also in that period where people have been doing it so long and then you were getting, like the super perfected version of it with red peony gambler. And then you're just getting people who are like having fun with it. Fucking around. Of. Yeah. And this is in the fucking around territory. <laughs> um, so the basic premise is instead of it being like, there's a boss that everyone's beholden to. It is a group of people who are like, uh, some of them have never been Yakuza. Some of them are ex Yakuza. Um, there's one guy who's like notably was like a major part of a Yakuza gang and specifically was just like no fuck having a boss he's the one who's the most intent on this like idea that they have as a group which is that it's just like we're going to be a yakuza gang without a boss where like we're doing it democratically Mm. um 
and that sometimes gets like played up for its own jokes um but it kind of starts with like there's these this small group and it's like starting with them uh recruiting some new members so you know it starts with like here's the like three main guys that you're gonna know they bring in the one other yakuza who's like one of the big ones they recruit a few other ones including this like um person who's just going to like cram school and just like really failing and just wants to like sleep around with girls and they're like well we need someone who's like a pretty face who can like get us girls so we're gonna like recruit him um and a lot of it just become like a big bulk of this movie is kind of just like hooligan hijinks Mm -hmm. um there's this really really delightful sequence where um so the group starts fracturing and uh most of the group just wants to like really get into like well let's just like get girls and like basically sell them to like sell them into prostitution uh let's basically get into sex trafficking is what some of them do uh um and one of the main characters and this is the part that's like incredible about this film to me is that um sometimes it just feels very funny but sometimes also in a black comedy way where like a recurring joke is one of the main characters just keeps saying to people like you know we're in a recession right now (laughs) (laughs) um but uh there's also these moments where it like goes into more interesting drama and like comments on political climate stuff um and so one of the characters whose name is ken who's played by a a biracial actor who was like born in japan but born of a a u.s soldier and is like half black and um because of that in japanese society is like visibly black Mm -hmm. um he is upset with this whole we're gonna like sell women into you know prostitution we're gonna Mm. like set up a sex trade we're gonna do all of this because literally his mom was like raped by a gi right um and that's how he was born Mm -hmm. and like he has like complex feelings and also this is the thing that like he had no control over and now he's like has to deal with anti-black racism constantly in japan and you see like instances of it in the film because he looks like the occupiers but like Mm -hmm. in this other way where what becomes interesting in it is that it is dealing with the like the mix of on one hand there is like a certain like anti-occupier thing that feels justified the the other hand it's also just pure anti-black racism right um and so it's sort of going into that but then the the one like was fairly high in a yakuza family and is just very adamant i don't want a boss anymore he is like uh more siding with with Ken being like, you know, this is awful what they're doing. Let's try and find other ways to make money. Um, and so this is when it just like swings back into comedy, um, is they decide that they're going to, uh, steal this car that is like full of a bunch of expensive fabrics that you would use to make kimonos. Um, while it's parked outside, cause the guy's in the bank or whatever. But he can like literally see his car, so they have to figure out. They go and find a car that looks the same as it, steal that car, and then Ken is waiting in that car while the other guy has to hop into the car while the guy's back is briefly turned and drive forward, and then Ken goes and parks in the exact same spot. So then the guy turns and thinks that he sees his car again. And just like the 
them like orchestrating this this hijink of stealing a car is just really entertaining to see <laughs> uh, it's just great to see the guy like about to turn ar- around and then the like shopkeeper says something and he like turns back like right as they're like driving you know um so yeah it's it's like surprisingly light despite the fact that it sometimes touches into like more serious territory mm-hmm. um and also i'm just gonna like kind of spoil some of the ending here because most people are probably aren't gonna be able to see it at Anyway, um, there's like a, a Yakuza family that's really mad that they're doing stuff on their turf and keeps like terrorizing them throughout the movie. Uh, and then there's a part at the end where they've just stolen a bunch of money from that Yakuza family that was like, they stole drugs. They're gonna, they sold the drugs. The Yakuza family is trying to get the money from the drugs that they stole from them. Um, they sold it to like a legitimate, like, hospital or something instead mm-hmm. the yakuza family is just gonna like distribute it to the community you know selling drugs right um and so the yakuza's are like the family with the boss is chase are chasing them in a car and then they're in a car and then they're like going up a, a like incomplete uh ramp into like a highway keep remember this because it's going to come back later with another film that i talk about (laughs) they slam on the brakes the yakuza go creating off the edge and the car lands and explodes um and then they get out and they're like ha 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 and then they forgot to do the the like parking brake and so their car rolls down the ramp and then they're like wait a minute the money's in the car and they start chasing after it and then the car like crashes and explodes on the other side (laughs) And so it just ends with this whole thing going through, and then they just don't have any money. It's so funny. I love this movie so much. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> anyway, I did a D minus because there there are some moments where you kind of see people like going upstairs, but like not very well. None of the stairs look that good. Um, so I'm not great for stairs, but oh. I love this movie so much. I'm the I'm the bitch that has strong feelings about Yakuza Gurantai. <laughs> <laughs> a film that, like, I think 25 people or something have seen. Let me, mm. just, let me just double check this on Letterboxd while you start talking about Niagara. Yeah, so um, I went on the channel today, um, and it's the start of the month, so there's new movies on the Criterion channel, and they... <laughs> I'm one of 18. 18. Um, and Criterion decided July, this is autumn month. We, we did a month just for autumn and because I open up the Criterion channel and I just see in big, like the, like the whole big banner, noir in Technicolor, yeah. <laughs> which is all I ever want to watch. <laughs> um, so I put on Niagara. I'm, gonna try and go through all these movies and I'm gonna try and go more or less just in the order that Criterion put it on the collection, but I did Niagara first because it's short. I was watching it with Nora, so I didn't want to bore Nora too much. Um, and Marilyn Monroe was in it. I'm like, I, I've never seen a Marilyn Monroe movie, so sure. Yeah. I should watch Some Like It Hot one of these days, but... I've seen Some Like It Hot. I just realized... Yeah. I know, it's weird. weird. It's weird. 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 Well, tell me about Niagara. <laughs> While I continue to think about it. Well, this was your first Marilyn Monroe movie. So are you familiar with the film Blue Velvet? Never heard of it. Well, so 
<laughs> Wait, do you mean to tell me that David Lynch was influenced by older movies? Yes. Perhaps noir movies? Yes. Like, perhaps ones from Otto Preminger and then Henry Hathaway? And... The director of this movie, mm. I went and was looking at his page. He did, like, two other movies of note in his career of, like, make, like yeah. he was a Hollywood studio guy. He made dozens and dozens of movies. He made, like, three of note. It is funny to me that... I don't know how many noir films we've talked about on this podcast, but three of them we have talked specifically about, like, Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet. Yes. Well, okay, so... It's specifically because this one's in color that it's, yeah. like... Like, there's other stuff that I'm like, oh, this reminds me of, like, David Lynch generally. This is, like... My man, like, watched this movie and was like, I'm taking that, I'm taking that, I'm taking that. <laughs> yeah, we should watch Laura. We should, we should. Um, yeah, I don't think this is going to be as, like, integral to, like, understanding, like, the cinema of David Lynch as, like, I think Laura will end up being. Um, I'm excited to get around to that when we do. I I think I mentioned this. I just decided to wait to see it until we do it for yeah. the show. But, um... If folks have time and they're fans of Blue Velvet, really highly encourage you to um, check this out. Um, there's just so... It's specifically, like, images. Like, the one that really jumped out to me, but there's a lot of stuff. But the thing that jumped out to me is there are lots of places... I, sh I should give a premise of the movie, which is that... Um, so, Marilyn Monroe and Joseph Cotton are staying... I know I love that. I love those two names you just said. I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Um, is a beautiful young woman married to grizzled old veteran of the Korean War, Joseph Cotton. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> um, their marriage is falling apart. And oh, yeah. <laughs> they're staying at um, this cabin in Niagara Falls, and she's cheating on him. And she hatches a plan because he's been, you know, since he came back from the war, he's been sort of erratic. And so she is hatching this plan. She's going to, um, like, um, she's going to have her new lover kill her husband, Joseph Cotton. Um, and then they're going to, like, run away together, basically. Um, that is all normal noir movie stuff. The yeah. thing that makes it so blue velvet to me is that also totally separate to this um is the 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 this couple the cutlers it's Polly is the woman and and, and the nerd, turbo nerd is the husband um and they're the most just Aw, oh, gee willikers, 50s couple. <laughs> that just, like, basically, they're coming. They're doing, like, a late honeymoon. They're, like, the, the scene they're introduced in is this, like, guy outside Niagara Falls is just, like, you know, checking their car. Like, you're not bringing any booze in. And the husband is like, oh, no, officer, those are just books I've got in the back seat. We're on our honeymoon. But I, you know, just in case, I wanted a little time to read. <laughs> He's like the most like Kyle MacLachlan at the start of Blue Velvet. <laughs> like I was also kind of imagining Pete in Twin yes, Peaks here. for sure. 
for if he's like older. Sure. Well, he's younger. Yeah. The, the the this other couple is younger. But this man is going to grow into Pete. Well, so <laughs> later on, later on, he's like, so he's really excited. <laughs> so they're introduced to the scene. They get to the, they get to the like like group of cabins they're staying at and he's like look Polly you can see it from here and the guy who's like showing them who guy who owns all these cabins is like oh no the falls are over that way he's like no there's the cereal factory I work at (laughs) (laughs) and he's so excited about shredded wheat and he want to the reason he's at like at Niagara Falls is he want a contest where he's going to get to meet the vice president of the shredded wheat company he works at because he came up with a really creative marketing strategy. (laughs) And he's so excited to meet the vice president who like is a Twin Peaks character in like ways that I I can't describe. He's just he's a very funny Twin Peaks character. And like if you watch the movie, you would understand what I meant immediately. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I'm sorry I'm going so long. It's just so fucking funny. These these two like just aw shucks people just like want like basically they're supposed to have like this cabin but Marilyn Monroe and Joseph Cotton are just like oh he's too drunk to leave we can't leave (laughs) and and so they the the like nice couple goes and stays in a different cabin but they just kind of like get kind of tangled up in each other's lives because basically like like um you know, through plot complications, they keep getting, like, thrust together over the course of this, like, weekend of Marilyn Monroe trying to kill her husband. And then the she tries to kill her husband, doesn't work. He's trying to kill her, you know, the whole yeah. nine yards. N- noir movie as this, like, very nice young couple gets swept up in it. Um, <clears throat> the other thing, so that's all very Blue Velvet to me is, like, you know, people who are not part of a noir movie get swept up in a noir movie, you know? Yeah. Um, the other thing is that a, a frequent, like, recurring image throughout the movie is these, like, everybody around town has these, like, rose beds in front of, like, the in front of the police station, in front of the morgue, in front of, like, um, you know, in front of the cabins. Like, they're all around town. There are these rose beds that are so beautiful And they just look fake constantly in a way that I'm just like, I know David was just like, I'm I'm putting those fake ass roses in my movie. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's also just like a scene of, um, there's literally like a scene of the guy who owns the cabins, like watering um, his grass or something and like waving at the young couple. And like, he's clear, like, he's just like, holding the hose and just like not even like really trying to water it he's just like a weird stock figure he's like a weird automaton like 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 the person watering the grass at the very start of the blue velvet and then you like go and there's the roaches under yeah anyway uh really like this movie um drags at the end because um uh Marilyn Monroe dies before Joseph Cotton does but she's way better in this movie than he is and so like, then it's like the last 20 minutes of, it's the Hayes Code, he killed her, he's gotta die, but we didn't really have any reason, so we have to sort of contrive a 20-minute, like, thrilling action sequence for Joseph Cotton to die in. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, really liked this movie. Um, I just I just like noir movies. Yeah, you like noir movies that are on Criterion the way that I like Japanese movies that have single digit watches. <laughs> I um keep meaning to watch this movie called Zero Focus, which might be at the intersection of those two because it's like under the Japanese noir section on Criterion. Um, but I like started it the other day, and I'm like, oh, this is a movie that they just put out there. Like no one has done any restoration on this. <laughs> this looks like shit. Um, stairs, stairs. Um, S. Um, Ooh. Yeah, I felt I felt. So the first time you see some stairs in this, I'm like, oh, those are some good stairs. I'm gonna give this movie a C. And then you see some more good stairs, and you're like, I'm going to give this movie a B. And then there's like some more good stairs, and you're like, this movie might have earned an A. And then the big climactic sequence um, where, you know, Joseph Cotton's going to go kill Marilyn Monroe is like literally a chase sequence on stairs. So, yeah, that looks fucking gorgeous. So that that's where it was like the stairs kept showing up, and they kept getting better every time. And then the climax of the movie is about stairs. He's literally going up the stairs as he contemplates this mistake he's about to make. Like, that's the thing. That's the reason we called the show this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if the fireworks are picking up on the recording. Well, we are recording this July 3rd, so. Yeah. Uh, I keep hearing the, like, bangs. And then from us in the closet, at first I thought that, like, the cats were in there knocking shit. That's what I thought, too. Yeah. I did not click in my head until now that it was fireworks. It was fireworks. I put so. it together very recently. <laughs> Sorry if you can hear it. Yeah. Um, shall I talk about uh, two movies called The Pirate and two movies with Judy Garland and Gene Kelly? Sure. Uh, so first, before we get into musicals, mm-hmm. we're going to go behind the curtain in the back of the family video <laughs> to the adult section. <laughs> um, I put on La Pirate, which mm-hmm. is another Rare Film M movie that I found by searching lesbian on Rare Film M. Mm-hmm. Um, of all of the movies that I have found <laughs> searching lesbian on Rare Film M, this is by far the most lesbian one. Um, so La Pirate... Uh, is a French film from 1984. Um, before we started recording, I went on Forvo and listened to how to say this guy's last name because it is in French. Mm-hmm. And then we talked for an hour and it is evaporated from my mind because it's no. French. So he's like Jacques Duillon or something. Mm-hmm. It's spelled D-O-I-L-L-O-N. Okay. And the L-L definitely makes it, it's like a yon at the end. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't remember what the DOI does. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, French is like, how to pronounce French is the one thing. I, there's lots of languages where I have some grasp on it. Mm-hmm. I know I'm bad at Chinese because I can't do the tones right. Mm-hmm. But I have like basic understanding. Of, I don't understand how French works. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't like understand the orthography. I understand Irish. I mm-hmm. don't understand French. Yeah. Um, Sorry, people. Anyway, I do know that it is La Pirate. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, uh, when I told Emma I was watching this, uh, they helpfully said, that means the pirate. 
um, so the plot of this movie. Um, so a woman shows up at uh, this home. It's some of her lover, but she's there with her. Like her lover's there with her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and her lover is like they like embrace and kiss, and then the lover is like, "Who are you?" You know, blah blah blah, like putting on a show of like, oh, some random person came to the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the husband's hearing that. Basically, in the course of it, they end up deciding to try and run away mm-hmm. um, so that they can be together. Uh, and somehow, I don't fully understand. And some of it is maybe I just, I was, I had a very slow part at work um, this week. And so I was watching a movie with subtitles. There was uh, some English in this because the husband is English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he's around, he speaks a little bit of French, but he usually speaks English and his wife usually speaks English to him. Um, but there's some stuff where I may have just missed a small detail, but there's like a, like 12 or 14 year old girl or something who also somehow gets in the mix and is like helping out these lesbians trying to escape. There's also a guy who is a private eye working for the husband or is pretending to be, it's unclear. <laughs> he always seems slightly drunk. Um, a thing that happens as this movie continues on that's kind of weird is that people will sometimes... Like, the the character that continues to, like, confuse me or, like, I ponder on the most is the, like, 12-year-old girl or however exactly old she is. Um, because not in a way that is, like, they are super sexualizing this character. But she acts as an adult in many cases. Um, the part that is weirdest, and the, I think what I've come to is that part of what the movie is saying is that she has not like experienced love in this way, where she's like caught up in the pain of it. And so she is able to look at the situation in an objective way that uh-huh. a lot of the other people can't. Um, and the one other person that kind of can is this... Um, this like private eye guy, but he's also like far more world weary than she is. She has like this optimism of youth. And I think that's part of what's being set up here. Um, but the private eye guy is normally just called number five, like the fifth one. Mm-hmm. They're like, uh, both of them have seen the girl and the private eye seem to be like more aware that they're in a movie or something. Um, anyway, they, they run away. The private eye is like basically trying to find them. The little girl is trying to help them escape. Um, and the part that's weird is the first time that the little girl's really acting like an adult is with this like old man. And I was like, Ooh, this, this could get real creepy. Like right. this old man needs to stop talking to this 12 year old. Cause this is weird. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's talking to her as if she's an adult. Right. And no, it's just like whatever this movie is doing is some sort of thing where they're like characters who are kind of embodiments of some concept or something mm-hmm. um that's not like a very clear concept but there's something the closest i can get is this like um optimism of youth and then uh like world weary uh-huh. experience of love but both of them kind of free of the emotions in the way that the two lesbians and the husband are not they are like actually stuck in the the like pain and the like uh irrationality of love and trying to sort through it. But as it progresses, so they like go to a hotel. This is where you get the most, like this is an erotic film. They have lesbian sex. Um, 
it's not like extremely gratuitous, but they are just like fully naked um, in the scenes where they're having sex. Uh, the husband end up, ends up finding them. Um, he, one thing that I think is interesting too, is that all three of them kind of, uh, like the main ones that are trying to struggle with the emotions of it are, are acting in like very emotional ways where they will like kind of swing. They'll have moments where they are, uh, able to maybe have a little bit more clarity and then they will devolve into like anger and sadness and things. Uh, and a thing that I think this movie understands very well is that him with like the power that he holds as a man, when he devolves into anger, it is so much scarier than when the two women do. Right. Um, like the ways that he behaves are like deeply, deeply unsettling in a way where theirs just feel more like they're like struggling and, and lashing out. Um, and it continues on, uh, throughout all of it. The little girl is also, uh, Occasionally pulling out a pistol that she has in her pants and the entire movie, I'm like, this little girl better shoot someone. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm going to kind of spoil the end of this movie. So if people don't want to hear it, like jump a minute forward or something. Um, but she does pull out that gun and shoot people at the very end. And it happens on <clears throat> stairs. Oh, hell yeah. So there's a, they, They're like running hell through various yeah. locations. They eventually end up on a boat. Um, most of them are like drinking and stuff. And the, the one, uh, the one who's like has the husband and then has been cheating on him with this woman, uh, throughout some of it, like one of the other things that's getting set up is like, obviously the husband doesn't want her to cheat, doesn't want her to be a lesbian. And then the lesbian lover is like also asking these things of her. And I, I think some of it is coming down to like this position you sometimes get stuck in with bisexuality where like both sides want you to just be their side rather than like be able to express um and also perhaps to some degree be able to have like a more uh poly relationship with people um because both of them just like want her entirely for themselves so she ends up running away on her own um and ends up on a boat and then they all end up getting on the boat before it takes off and the finale uh takes place as the boat is going and then it like ends up finally docking um, and it's on the stairs leading off of the boat where I'm going to again say the spoilers so you can jump ahead. The 12 year old shoots the girl, like the woman who was like ran away. And I was like, oh, cause obviously the mm-hmm. husband's the one who like really needs to be shot in this situation. Yeah. He's just become the most like terrifying man. And I was like, oh no. And then, um, everyone's like freaked out cause the 12 year old pulled out, a, pulled out a gun and shot people. Uh huh. Um, and so then the, the lesbian and her lover, like, run off and get into a car. And then she's still holding the two men at gunpoint. Um, and the, the guy keeps, like, pushing forward, just being like, you can't stop me. I'm going to, like, go get them. And then she just unloads into this dude. And he's, (laughs) he's so clearly dead in a way that, like, she was not. He's just fucking dead. Um, and then the 12 year old girl gets into the car and, uh, in a way that she has been doing throughout most of this movie where she will sometimes like comfort people when they're in great emotional distress. She is like comforting the lesbian who's like bleeding out and they're like presumably heading to the hospital or something. And then it ends before you know whether or not she dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you hear a gunshot at the end, which felt unnecessary. Like a gunshot <laughs> sound. I don't know. Just to like punctuate or something. Weird. It was the the one decision in the entire movie that I was like, 
man, I would cut out that gunshot. All the rest was like, this is a little weird, but it's like, um, I, I was texting with M while I was watching it because I was trying to process to some degree what I was watching. Um, and it's like a really overwrought, uh, French film about like queerness and all of this. Um, but in this way where it sometimes dissolve, devolves intentionally or not into weird levels of campiness. Mm-hmm. And that just saved it. Like if it was just fully overwrought, pretentious French film about lesbianism, um, I probably would not like it as much as I did. But the fact that it ends with a 12 year old shooting people that they've just been setting up, uh, has like a degree of like camp and ridiculousness that just made me, um, that made the like overwrought stuff actually sold that better and made me like it more. Mm -hmm. So I ended up really enjoying this movie. I kind of didn't think I would when I started it up, but it was fun. Um, there's also a part where the 12 year old girl gives the, uh, the one lesbian who, you know, has the husband, uh, a knife. And, uh, cause also a big thing throughout it is like, people keep like commenting that what she wants is like a murderer. And so also gets paid off when the 12 year old shoots her, but is like, here you have a knife, like you should be the murderer basically. Um, and that's just, it's just great to have a 12 year old give an adult a knife and be like, you should go stab your husband basically. <laughs> um, but then she's just so frustrated with the, the situation she's in that she just like stabs up the bathroom, um, and doesn't stab the husband. So the little girl has to take it in her own hands, pull out that yeah. gun, kill that fucking husband. <laughs> um, but yeah, I gave an A to the stairs cause it was climactic, but it w- was not that great of stairs, you know? Yeah. But she still does shoot people on stairs. It's a good movie. <laughs> now tell me about the, your second movie that you watched oh called God, The Pirate. I have, I have to talk about two more movies. Yeah. About I'm going to talk you, about... You can be quicker. They're yeah. musicals. I'm going to talk about uh, Vicente Minnelli's The Pirate and then Charles Walter's Summer Star. Yeah. Which are two musicals with Judy Garland and Gene Kelly. I watched Summer Stock first. Um, and basically on the recommendation of like, I think this is one of... M's favorite Gene Kelly movies. Uh, and it was really good. I enjoyed it. I mean, I still didn't read it that highly on uh, Letterboxd because it's still just like a style of music. Like, this is the thing mm. that I think I've just come to is that I am not opposed to musicals, but so often musicals mean a very specific, like, show tune style music that is only created for musicals. Mm hmm. That's like why that stuff, they are written to be musicals. There's an entire genre that just exists to be musicals. Right. Um, and I just don't like that genre of music yeah. that much. This was like, to jump ahead a little bit, a little bit to Umbrellas of Cherbourg, like, part of the reason this movie worked so well for me is that it was fucking jazz music, which I like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and so, like, the idea of, oh, there are like intensely emotional moments where people will burst into song. Um, that is compelling to me. And like, you know, as M pointed out, like it translates to like the shoujo style of like their intense motions. And then you get like a extravagantly drawn splash page, Mm. you know, and that's like kind of serving the same function. Um, the art will like express that, but I enjoy that style of art in a way that I just don't enjoy show tunes. Mm. And I think part of it is that like, there's something in the like lavishly gorgeous, but also I know that this was like so painful for 
the person to draw mm-hmm. that sells like the intensity of the emotion mm. in like well, a clamp or something. I mean, few people have suffered for their art more than Judy Garland. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and I think that's part of why it worked a little bit better. But like some of it is that like the the music itself is so yeah um devoid devoid of like these edges that i want whereas like musically if something is like an intense expression of emotion i want some sort of like distortion and like um i want something that like feels like it is like straining at the limits of the like instruments and things like that's part of what i associate with like strong expression of emotion in music is when like literally the emotion is so powerful that it is like straining at the the limit of the human voice or the whatever and that's just not what show tunes are trying to do and it's fine they yeah don't, they don't need to appeal to me but they're 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 crafted for you know being performed night after night after night after night yes. after night <laughs> Yeah, they're not crafted to be something that you record in a studio where you're, like, kind of fucking up your voice when you do the take. But yeah. then you're like, well, that's the take, and now I'm going to go drink some water I'm gonna, and be yeah. done for, yeah. a, like, a week or two. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh, but, yeah, I enjoyed Summerstock a fair amount. Um, I think some of it is that uh, there is a song at the beginning that's kind of in the just funny where she, she gets her tractor... And she's, like, driving home, and she's just saying hello to all the neighbors. And it's kind of just one of those, like, nothing songs that exist in musicals. But a lot of the other kind of nothing songs that exist in musicals in this become more framed by it as just a, like, group of... is a troop of people who are putting on a musical who show up to use Judy Garland's uh, barn um, that she did not consent to. Her sister just thought that it would be fine. Um, and she's all ornery about it. Um, but then does meet Gene Kelly and he is a charming man and is like, well, okay, <laughs> you seem passionate about this, but you do have to help out around the farm. So there's also like a bit of the fun of seeing like all of these musical people who would not be doing hard labor, doing hard labor and like fucking up at it. Um, and then a lot of the actual songs get framed around them doing the practicing for the musical, uh, like it often feels far more diegetic Mm. in a sense. And there's like specifically a part where Gene Kelly is even like explaining like, Oh, let me like explain to you the tropes of musicals. Like say that like you're Mm. the woman and I'm the man and like, I love you. Mm. And so I'm going to express that through song. And she's like, why? And it's like, that's what we do. It's just like, that's how love is expressed in Mm -hmm. musicals. You do a big song about it. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm going to like sing to you because I'm trying to explain to you what a musical is. Right. Uh, And then sings to it. And then it obviously comes back when they end up falling in love because it's Judy Garland, Gene Kelly movie where they fall in love. No. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Sacre bleu. (laughs) Um, even though he is engaged to her sister, but it all gets worked out in the end. Basically, no way! Basically, they trade fiancés. <laughs> um, Judy Garland's fiancé, who's kind of a an absolute nerd, but is well-meaning, ends up helping out the sister. In the, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but no, it was fun. I, like, I feel like it's like the best of these that I can hope for. So I enjoyed it. Yeah. I also watched The Pirate... Um, Fucking fireworks. I just heard one and it threw me off so much. Um, which 
was also like it is the one that people have probably seen the gif on like twitter or whatever where gene kelly on a ship takes a cigarette out of a woman's mouth puts it in his mouth and smokes bends her over with the cigarette still in his mouth and then kisses her so that the cigarette goes in her mouth and it's the like most suave charming like just panty dropping like Gene Kelly <laughs> moment ever. Uh, people love it. Okay. And I, it's a fucking great moment. It's in the middle of a song that is about how he calls all girls that he thinks are attractive Nina. And they ask him why. And he just says, why not? And the song seems to have zero understanding that this is a, just a Spanish word for girl. <laughs> and that's why like men might say nina nina to women all the time uh-huh. it's like they saw someone doing that who spoke spanish did not speak spanish and just thought well i guess that's just the name that he decided to call women i'm gonna write a song about it um <laughs> all the songs in this movie were so stupid i mean i haven't fully finished it because i was part way through when i then had to stop working and uh, watch a toddler and everything. So I'm going to come back to it, but I was enjoying it so much less, even as that one moment with Gene Kelly was incredible, <laughs> but also seeing a gif of it was so much better than seeing it in the middle of that song. Mm-hmm. That was a stupid song. That song lessened that moment for me. And I mm. kind of am mad at this movie for that. <laughs> it gave me that. But I saw it out of context, and then I saw it in context, and I feel like it took a little bit of it away. <laughs> well, speaking so, of... Oh, sorry. It turns out that if you put Judy Garland and Gene Kelly in it, it will not necessarily make me like a musical. It still needs to be a, a good musical. Uh-huh. Uh, and Summerstock is, and I don't think the pirate is. But Gene Kelly, more so in that movie, when he did that mo- that move, I was like, okay, I see it. <laughs> Whereas in Summerstock, I was like, yeah, M sure does love George from Paradise Kiss. They are the same character. <laughs> I want to go back to thinking about Osaki Nana. Um, speaking of Gene Kelly, yeah. that's a goddamn movie star. Yes. You know who else is a goddamn movie star? Oh, wait. Stairwell ratings. I did A for the pirate. I did question marks for the pirate. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I never finished it and I don't remember any stairs, and I did an F with a question mark for summer stock because I think sometimes you see stairs but no one ever goes up and down it because it's kind of a musical and they're like on sets. You know who's a goddamned movie star? Yeah, Errol Flynn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So Nora and I just sort of impulsively watched um The Adventures of Robin Hood, nineteen thirty eight, um directed by Michael Curtiz and some other guy who did not direct Casablanca, so I don't remember his name. Um <laughs> William Keeley. William Keeley. I'm right here. Well, one of them directed Casablanca, and the other is just a guy. (laughs) Anyway. I'm going to look up, while you talk about it, what else this man has directed, just in case. um, Who else is looking at this? um, Yeah. uh, I don't know if you know this. Errol Flynn is fucking incredible. Yeah. the Avengers of Robin Hood is genuinely like some of the most fun that Nora and I have ever had watching a movie together. That movie was fucking awesome. <laughs> um, okay. Just n- we're now looking at this person's other films. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure some of these are good. Nothing on this is really standing out to me as like a big classic people talk about. Yeah. 
He's not a co-director on Casablanca, so... The man who came to dinner, I have heard of. It's the first movie on this list I've heard of besides The Adventures of Robin Hood. The Street Hood. with No Name. I don't He's know He's got a few one. on here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, none of them are Casablanca, <laughs> but, like... What, Orson Welles? Is that who you're, like, saying can compete here? Orson Welles only? <laughs> anyway, um, so, um, yeah, just a fucking phenomenal movie. Holy shit. Um, I won't bore everybody with the premise because the premise is Robin he's Hood. Robin Hood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you haven't read any of the Robin Hood stuff, you've definitely seen one of or probably more than one of like eight yeah. bajillion adaptations. Yes. Um this movie just rocks. Mm-hmm. I've got, I've got nothing else to say. This movie fucking rocks. The stunts in it? The stunts in it? Oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah. This is the 30s. Yeah. You could just reckless endangerment of human lives. <laughs> you got like the, the one that really got me, the one that really got me, and this could be a stunt person, but even if it is a stunt person, this person's actually doing it. Um, you get, you've got, like, Errol Flynn or the stunt, stunt man, like, on horseback, grabs a rope, cuts it. it. The rope is holding up a, like, gate that gets out of town. Cuts the rope, holds onto it. The horse runs under the gate as the rope goes up and closes, he climbs the rope as it's going up and then gets up onto the top of the gate so that he can go down over and get back with the band of merry men. The, that was the one that got me. Does he jump back on the horse? Because that would be fucking nuts. I, I don't mean, think it's already he, nuts. I don't think he jumps onto the horse. <laughs> I think he climbs down the ladder and then, or climbs down the rope and then, you know, like drops four feet. Um... The one that really got to Nora is a v- very small one of, um, there's like some of the, the sheriff of Nottingham and some of his, his boys are riding through the forest. They're on horseback and some of like the merry men jump out of trees onto these men on horseback to tackle them, <laughs> which is a crazy thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's just, it is so joyous. It, it's 1938, but it's in, it's in like full, beautiful Technicolor. It's, um, which this movie really needs, I think. I don't think you could do this movie in black and white at all. Yeah. Um, um, and also because it's 1938 and it's in Technicolor, sometimes it looks stupid. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> no one knows how to make these costumes yet, but they're, they're trying. Listen, even in the 1950s, they were still trying to do the Vaseline on the lens for Judy uh-huh. Garland in full color. They do it. They do it for uh, Marilyn Monroe a couple times in Niagara, and it works. And I'm reasonably certain that it only works because it's Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh. Like, Errol Flynn is just so fucking charismatic in this movie. Um. All the other guys he hangs out with, he just like. It's just boys' night. Like, the first, like, third of this movie is just him getting all the boys together. He goes yeah. and, like, 
fights a dude and the dude kicks his ass and they just laugh and they're like, are we friends now? They're like, yeah, we're friends. Let's go uh, fuck up the sheriff of Nottingham. (laughs) Um, Oh, this movie is such a hoot. Um, I don't know how much more I have to say. I imagine Nora and I, next time I podcast with Nora, we might talk about it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, It was also nice because we watched Moonraker... We recorded the Moonraker podcast, and then, like, pretty much immediately after the Moonraker podcast, Nora was like, hey, I kind of wanted to watch this, like, Robin Hood movie. I was like, oh, sure, I guess. We were both expecting to kind of like it. Totally blown away by this movie. And it helped that it came after, like, the awful garbage that is Moonraker. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I'm kind of giving them out this week, but, like, I'm giving this one another S because there are three different sword fights on stairs. At one point, Errol Flynn jumps off the set of stairs to grab a torch and hauls himself up onto a balcony. <laughs> That's fucking sick! <laughs> Man, remember when movies used to have stairs in them? <laughs> like, there's... Okay, the castle where Prince John is um, has this, like... has, like, four sets that you see like a bunch of different times, you know? And one of those sets is like, has not quite a spiral staircase, but it's like, there's this big pillar, like a huge, like, you know, 15 foot by 15 foot, like circular pillar, um, like coming up out of the ground and a like kind of a spiral staircase, like turning down the side of it, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? Anyway, like, There's, like, three different times that, like, Robin Hood is, like, sword fighting on those stairs. And, like, he only has, like, he could run down the last, like, three, four feet of stairs. But every time he just, like, jumps, which just is great. It's just great. Yeah. (laughs) I love this movie. I love this movie with my whole entire fucking heart. Um, Wow. Uh, not to, to give some things away, but <clears throat> I'm going to talk about an S-rank stair movie. <laughs> um, this is the last one. We saved it for the end. Uh, I'm kind of debating how much, because I don't know if we're going to push back the Lynch stuff at all. Mm-hmm. But if we do, I might slot in you and I for the podcast watch. I mean, products. if you don't do that, I'm just going to watch it on my own sometime this week. But I want to watch it with you because they're just stuff that I want well, to see your reaction okay. in the moment. Okay, well then, well, also, just for the record, because a couple people were giving me trouble yes, about this, you're like, I have seen this movie. I saw it when I was 10, which for me, I'm not going to count those as I saw a movie. I mean, I will, but not in the, I remember what this movie is. I just sometimes, like... I know, it got under your skin. Got under my skin because people kept saying I have never seen it and like, oh, this is such a blind spot for me or something. I've seen the fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I was at a re- I was at a library checking out Aretha Franklin CDs when I was 10 fucking years old. I've seen Blues Brothers. <laughs> I know, but <laughs> also you saw it when you were 10. Sure. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> You are going to watch it and lose your fucking mind still. Yeah, no, I, I know I am. I know I am. That's all I was tweeting about, is you're going to lose your fucking mind when you watch this movie. Yeah. You haven't seen it since you were ten. Yeah. And shit fucking happens in this movie that is, <laughs> like, beyond... 
So here's the thing that I, I did. Uh, I thought we were going to record last week, maybe. We ended up not, but I prepared this a week ago. Yes, please. This is so much fun. So I want to run through. Um, Before I go through the other numbers, Blues Brothers, in the end, was 27.5 million dollars to make in 1980. Mm-hmm. I tried to find other like larger action movies mm-hmm. from around that time, so like 79, 80, 81, basically. Um, do you want me to start at let's start at Moonraker? Yeah. Somehow Moonraker took 34 million dollars. I know it's because they really flew to Rio to shoot the movie. And they really flew to, like, Italy to shoot the movie. But both of those things were totally unnecessary because it doesn't actually, like, look like they're in Italy yeah. or in Rio for either of those parts of the movie. Um, the other one, and probably for a somewhat similar reason, that has a higher budget, but still fairly close in here, is Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Um Star Wars does a lot of location shoots. They had to fly for those. Also, there's like a greater degree of just like having to build mm-hmm. all sorts of shit because you're doing a sci-fi thing. Also, I don't know, but I imagine all the actors were getting paid more after the success of the first movie. Yes, probably. Uh, Blues Brothers. Again, 27.5. Uh, here's two movies that cost less to make than Blues Brothers. Flash Gordon, mm-hmm. which is is estimated around 20 to 27 million. So there's two things you have to remember with Flash Gordon that on the one hand in 1980 they hired Queen to do a soundtrack mm-hmm. <laughs> which I imagine was not cheap. Yeah. On the other hand, Dino De Laurentiis famously never working with union like crew. Yes. Like <laughs> So on like the one hand Super cheap because non-union crew on, on on the other Queen soundtrack in 1980. <laughs> um, this is the one that was the the like funniest to me. Uh-huh. Raiders of the Lost Ark, twenty million. That's insane. That is insane to me. <laughs> Seven point five million more dollars went into Blues Brothers than Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's weird to think about Raiders of the Lost Ark being like cheap as far as action movies of the 80s go. This isn't even that cheap. If you look at a bunch of other movies from this well, era, yeah, it's but like, like action less. movies. But yeah, action movies. Action movies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's wild because it is a, a comedy film, first and foremost, mm-hmm. um, that is also a musical, and they do get in like Aretha Franklin. Um, why am I drawing a blank on names now? I know John Lee Hooker's in the movie. Yeah, John Lee Hooker. Um, my brain has just, like, stopped processing <laughs> names. Uh, this is the thing is I'm terrible with names. Um, especially after I've been recording, like, two hours. Um, I'm just, oh, my like, God, we're at 90 minutes and we yeah. haven't talked about umbrellas yet. <laughs> um, I just want to, like, pull up some of these. Uh, James Brown. Oh, right. Cab I Calloway. Yeah. Ray Charles. Yeah. Um, there's also just like a bunch of other people who show up. Um, John Candy's in this movie because of course he is. Steven Spielberg shows up as the court county as- uh, assessor. They should have gotten Steven Spielberg to show up as the shark. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. <laughs> the um, shark. 
So there's a few reasons why this movie ended up being expensive. One is that it, one is that they put a little bit more money into just like <clears throat> SNL Blues Brothers, mm-hmm. like this music was like big at the time. They're putting some money into like getting those stars and trying to like promo and whatever. Uh, they think that they have a hit on their hands. They are correct. They make more than yeah, far more than the amount they spend on it back. Uh, this movie is fucking incredible. It's one of the mm-hmm. greatest movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, we were because we were doing this like budgets thing last week, and we were like, "Oh, it grossed this much." I don't remember what the number was, but it was. It was huge. And then I was like a hundred million or something. Yeah. And then I was like, and that's not even like the home video, which is probably where the real money for that movie was. People think of this as a like cult classic that like took off in the home video market. Yeah. It still made a lot in the theaters. Yeah. Um, but so some of it is that also John Belushi wrote the script mm-hmm. and it was the first script that he ever wrote. And it was apparently highly unconventional. <laughs> and, uh, at times I think it's been described as experimental. Uh, lots of shit was happening in it. Um, it did not make sense for, a, a, a like Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. And so John Landis had to rewrite it. And that took some time. Um, and like delayed production schedule <laughs> stuff. John Landis, uh, Name rings a bell, but remind me um, what else he did. Because yeah, yeah. it's running together with Harold Ramis in my head, which just because of the is at the end of the name. Yeah. I mean, I feel like uh, he's also done like a fair amount of like kind of comedy stuff. Animal House. Okay. Um, American Werewolf in London. Okay. Yes. Okay. This is good. Um, oh, Three right. Amigos. Twilight Zone the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Innocent Blood. Worked um, on Clue, sort yeah, of. Coming to America. Okay. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah. One of these guys. Yes. Um, so he had, a, he had to, like, rewrite it, make it a little bit more, uh, sensical. They did also bring in people. Also, there's a ton of extremely dangerous car stunts. <laughs> um... There's a part where this part I'm I'm pretty sure was a constructed set, but they just completely destroy like every single part of a mall with a car chase with the Blues Brothers and then a bunch of police. Um, there are so many police cars crashing into other police cars in this movie. There are so many police cars careening off of edges and things. Um, so many stunt drivers were like really endangered in the production of this movie. Are we like? <laughs> Just to get me a sense, can you compare this movie to, like, Mad Max 2 Road Warrior? Like, more or oh. less dangerous. Oh, so that's the other... Uh, let me find uh, Mad Max. This was... Um, I think the the time scale was a little... No, this was 79. So this... Um, Mad Max was... Uh, this is the, like, Australian dollars, so we'd have to do the conversion. But so much less. Yeah, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Um... The, the car stunts are fucking nuts in this movie. <laughs> and the part that's weirdest or, like, just most nuts about it to me is so many of them are, like, played as punchlines. Mm-hmm. So many of them are jokes. Yeah. They will be, like, in the middle of a car chase and it's just like, oh, uh, I need to get off here because they're on the, like, expressway. And then just let them... <laughs> Just the car goes like careening off of the edge of the like freeway into like a you know ditch and just like perfectly drives onto like the other road that they're getting to and then a bunch of cop cars go and like crash into the dish ditch. It's wild. 
Um, this is the part that, that was the wildest to me. So also famously, most of this is shot on location in Chicago. Mm -hmm. This is another reason why I love this movie is because there's so much stuff that happens in this where I'm just like, this is the city that I live in. It's just the city, the wildest part. And I understand why they chose this building for multiple reasons. One is that like, there's going to be a whole big thing where they then go up in the building because, uh, so there's this thing called the daily center. It has this famous, uh, Picasso statue. In front, uh, there's a whole joke about them being the Daily Center. Oh, that's where the Picasso is. Who's you know, mm. um, and eventually they're going to go all the way up in the building because so there's like a bunch of security now at least. Um, I don't know when all that got installed, uh, but then like if you just go up, it's just like courts. It, it's a whole bunch of like you have to go deal with the government in some way. There's just a fuck ton of offices up there, mm-hmm. and so. At least now there's just tons of security. Um, I went up in this building to have my name change hearing Mm -hmm. where I had to go in front of a judge and present a thing that said, this is what I want my name to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's like my enduring memory of this place. Mm -hmm. But I've been to it for many other reasons. Um, Usually, though, you end up in the basement, which is a little less like high security. It's mostly like DMV style stuff. Mm. Um, that kind of vibe. Uh, but like, there's just like intense stuff up above, but the, the bottom floor just has like a little, like the elevator shaft. And then there's just a bunch of open floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I fully understand why they chose this for the scene where, and I know that it is the daily center one, because it is like pitch perfect, but also because when they drive through it, they so clearly are avoiding the metal, like mm-hmm. parts of the window. Cause it also has these like huge windows mm-hmm. and going just through the panes where they probably took the glass out and put in like sugar glass. Right. And so they drive through one of the panes and then drive through the floor, through the daily building, through another pane. I'm just like, this is a fucking government building that like, I have to like, every time I go through, I'm like, well, I can't take my knitting cause they'll try and confiscate my like knitting scissors. Cause it's like <laughs> got a little tiny point on it, you know? Right. They drive a fucking car through it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and then they have like a shit ton of people just like going because the Blues Brothers take the the elevator up um, because they're trying to like pay off the debt for the, the orphanage or whatever. Mm-hmm. So much of this movie like loses its main plot, which is that they're trying to get money to pay back the, to like help this orphanage that they grew up in. Um, but it does come back at the end and they're going up the elevator and just being all casual and finding you all like literal, like hundreds of police officers in SWAT gear are like running up the stairs, trying to like get to them. Um, you know, gun, like beating down doors to like try and get into the floor because they figured out where he was and every, or, you know, Mm. where they went and everything. And Steven Spielberg is there and like writing the, the receipt and then like goes (laughs) to hand it to them. And at the moment that they stick their hands out to get the receipt, the like, you know, um, handcuffs go on them as well. (laughs) So they get the receipt, they've done it, but then they're going to to jail. (laughs) Um, this is like the end of the movie. So I'm kind of spoiling it, but the whole point of blues brothers is not, Oh, are they going to be able to pay back or like gonna pay for the, the orphan? They're going to do it. The whole point is that there's just nonsense stunts throughout the entire fucking They They blew up so much shit. Mm-hmm. I, this movie is fucking wild. 
so something I was thinking about with um, anyway, ask because they run up a, f- they show a whole bunch of police officers running up a bunch of stairs to the big like climax moment, and it's not even the best looking staircase, which is at the very beginning when they go to the orphanage and they have to walk up the like this most intense stairwell ever, which is really intense shadows with a crucifix Jesus, where it's like literally Jesus on the cross, like bleeding and everything mm-hmm. at the top of the stairs, looming over it. They have to walk up the stairs to go talk to the nun, and then the nun's like hitting them, and then. Uh, uh, one of them, I think Elroy is the one who like runs down and then John Belushi's character is in the, um, desk and is trying to hop and then just falls down the stairs. (laughs) And it's just the like most beautiful, like ornate staircase for a gag of, uh, a man stuck in a desk falling down a a set of stairs. (laughs) Fucking ass. Um... (laughs) Something I was thinking about with, like, The Adventures of Robin Hood is how much I appreciate that movie is, like, they do these crazy death-defying stunts, you know, like, and then, like, because it's Robin Hood and his merry men, like, they do this crazy shit where you're like, oh, my God, they're going to kill that person. (laughs) Like, oh, my God, that person's going to die. And then, like, constantly, like, people in that movie are just like, ha, 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 let's do that again sometime. Yeah. (laughs) And um, that's all I could think about when you're talking about, like, oh, yeah, they, like, blew up this car as, like, the punchline to a joke of just, like, oh, that person almost died, and it's just a joke in this movie, which is just, like, a good way to do action, Yeah. I think. This is also part of why I love Jackie Chan so much, is that sometimes there's just incredible action, and yet it's still funny. Yeah. Um, I can't, like... It's also why Buster Keaton is one of the greatest people to ever be on film mm-hmm. because sometimes just doing the most bonkers fucking stunts where you're like, oh my God, at the same time that it's just funny. You know what else I think about is, um, you need to watch some Buster Keaton. I do. You know what else I think <laughs> about is the, um, at the very start of Raiders when Indy's got the spider on his back. And yeah. you're like, oh shit, spider! And then the the other guy turns around and he's got like forty spiders on his back. <laughs> yeah, um, it's just funny. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, there's lots of like little things that I left out because I just want your reaction in the moment. Mm-hmm. So there's an entire uh, character in this that I don't even know if you remember. Mm. Uh, her who plays her. So. Drug. I imagine it'll be like one of those things where, like, as we're watching, I'm like, oh, right, this is coming back to me. Yeah. So. Because I can, like, there are some images as we talk that I'm like, I remember, I remember that. But, like, it's all kind of disjointed. Yeah. So. Anyway, the Blues Brothers is also a musical. Um, but the music is a bunch of blues music. Right. Um, I don't know why this chair is all sticky, but... <laughs> well, it's because I'm chair. fucking sweaty, that's why. <laughs> no, there's something fucked up with the chair. Okay. It's like beyond you being sweaty. I would just not lean back, I think, unfortunately. My back hurts. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, That's it for Blues Brothers. What yeah. more do you want from me? It's one of the best fucking movies ever made, and proof that I like musicals if it's just not the show tune stuff. Anyway... An hour and 45 minutes into this recording, do you want to get to uh, the movie we came here to talk about? Yeah. Okay. It was fine. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter. (laughs) 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 Hold up. This movie's way better than fine. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) I think you're warmer on this movie than me. It's still better than fine, but... 
I like this movie a lot. Um, I liked that it was jazz. I just wish that it was a little bit more. I don't know. Um, we watched uh, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Cherbourg. There's like, a, there's like a certain from I know from German at the end. Cherbourg. Um, Cherbourg. Cherbourg. 19... I'm trying to do it. I'm not doing a joke here. 1964 musical. I'm not trying to be funny. I just don't know how to say French that well, and I'm trying my best. 1964 musical directed by Jacques Demy, um, husband to Agnès Varda, um, acclaimed director in his own right. Um, but uh, mostly notable for being husband of Agnès Varda. Mostly noticeable, notable for being an acclaimed director in his own right, not nearly as acclaimed as his wife. Yeah. May we all be so lucky. <laughs> uh, we must uh, applaud the talented men who are still somehow overshadowed by their wife. Because um, it happens so so infrequently. Society is so set up. To just... In the same field, too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um... So anyway, this... Anya's Varda's husband. <laughs> um... Quick little plot synopsis because it's pretty, pretty thin on plot. Um, this one guy named Guy <laughs> um, is in love with a girl named Catherine Deneu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, named. It's uh, oh, um, Genevieve. Yeah, Genevieve. Um, and, um. He gets drafted into um, the war in Algeria, um, and before he goes, he gets her pregnant. Um, and so the first act is sort of a love story between them. The second act, um, and the movie like very like specifically divides these three acts. The second act is her being torn on what to do. Does she want to wait for for Guy to come back from the war? That'll be two years from now. Her baby will be like, you know, a year and a half old at that point. Like, also, there's because her mom is like, right, was kind of against, the, was kind of against Guy to begin yeah. with. Um, and then also, is there like, is a, oh, the like, the shame of, you know, yes, having this child out of wedlock. Like, you're already presenting and stuff. Yes. Um, and there's and so, this, there's this. Charming rich man. Yes. Who is who, like... Who's come to buy my pearls. Yes. Uh, it's so funny how they set up the, like, tension of, oh, we have to, like, pay debts on the the umbrella shop, which you should just start selling... You should sell products else. that are not just umbrellas. You should also sell sunglasses so that when it's not rainy, you still have business. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, maybe get some raincoats in the mix. The... Like... <laughs> Just expand your portfolio a little bit. If you're running a business, <laughs> I recommend selling more than the one product. And also for that one product to be more universal than an umbrella. Yeah. Anyway, um, they meet this like charming rich man who wants uh, Genevieve's like hand in marriage, and he's going to accept her even though she's pregnant. And so she takes him up because you know. It's a sure thing, you know, this other, um, 
this thing with Guy, it's not so sure. Like, they don't know what's going to happen. So He could die in the water. Yeah, Guy comes back, um, and he's very heartbroken. He, like, tries working a job for a little bit, but he, like, the job he used to have, but he's just so heartbroken from everything that happened with Genevieve and with the war, and he yeah, doesn't know what to do. also potentially having, like, PTSD, but in the, like, very... This is a movie where there's not like space real to contemplate, of that. And so it's kind of just the the faint. It also this movie is less about it, yeah. But like has also some of the stuff that you might associate with like the noir protagonist who is a soldier and has come back and is yeah, you know. So, uh, and his his aunt who raised him has been, like, on the verge of death since the first second of this movie and somehow holds out for the entire time that he's at the war. But then he, she dies pretty yeah. shortly after he, he comes, comes back. He comes back, and then uh, she's like, finally I have to, like, see you again, basically. Now I can die. Now Thank I can God. die. And then she closes her eyes and fades away. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was force-sensitive the entire time. <laughs> Um, it was just funny to me how much the moment of her closing her eyes and dying just felt like Yoda fading away. <laughs> um, and the the nurse who has been um, attending to his aunt is like, basically, they're like, those two end up falling for each other. And it's not this perfect. This nurse kind of clearly had the hots for him. Yes. Like, she's got the hots for him, but she's like, oh, but he still loves her. I don't know if I want to go through with this. And she's never, like, the relationship is never fully, like, 100% good. Because he does kind of still love her a little bit. The the other, Jean-Vierre. Yeah. Uh, but, like, that's not open to him. And so he's just going to try and enjoy the life that he has. And, like, you know fast forward there's an epilogue um a couple years later um they've got a kid um and um they own a gas station and like they have found a life that works for them and one night at the gas station um uh Genevieve like stops by totally total coincidence got um their daughter in the car and he doesn't he decides not to meet you know his daughter, um, and it's just very poignant and sad. And she drives away, and life moves forward. And I thought this was a really touching movie. Yeah. Um. I the the script is very like the story is very like slight, but um it works for me, and I think it works better because of the music. You know. Um. We we have not really explained the thing with the music at all yeah which is that there's just constantly kind of a jazzy track in the background and then people just say all the lines in kind of a like sing-songy way yes the there's music. no like choruses there's no verses even it's just i have my line and i will sing my line or whatever you yeah. know um yeah and and in a way that f really kind of just feels like there is a script that existed that was not even meant to be put to music. And then they just, mm. I don't know if this is how it was produced, but it has that feeling. Like you could so easily just act this. It's not like stuff is like rhyming all the time. In yeah. There are moments where it is played where they will like, someone will say something and then the person like repeats it in a way that would just also just happen in a script. But then they kind of like, will do a little call response with it or something. But like, 
it is mostly just kind of having the jazz music and like maybe finding the music in the, the right. words that exist already. Right. Um, um, so the other thing that's happening here also that's important to note is that like I mentioned earlier, like, oh, I watched Niagara and like it was so clear to me the way the things that like David Lynch was like stealing for Blue Velvet. Um, I watched this movie and from the first five minutes, I was like, oh, this is the movie that Wes Anderson has spent 20 years trying to make. Yeah. <laughs> because this looks like every Wes Anderson movie, but better. Yeah. <laughs> and I say this as a person who kind of likes Wes Anderson movies. Like, everything is just, like, the most... Um, it's just, like, extremely colorful also colors sometimes demarcate like like blue is really associated with guy i read the, i read a really interesting um uh trivia thing on this wikipedia page which is that um they shot it on eastman color which did not store as well as technicolor did and so like demi got three different black and white negatives basically that would correspond to cyan magenta and yellow um and the the reason that we we now get to see such a good restoration is that like they were able to digitize three different negatives basically and and combine them into the color image um the colors in this movie are fucking incredible yeah um yeah there it's so uh so th this is the thing is like I don't I don't think that the music detracts from it. I think if there wasn't the music in this, I would probably like the movie the same mm -hmm. if everything else was the same. I also understand how the music is tying into this like operatic like kind of um everything is like permeated in this way that the color and then the music is also doing that like I understand the music's place in it. Um, I think that like it probably makes it more cohesive to have the music, but also I'm I feel like experientially if it wasn't this musical thing and they were just doing lines, but there was still the really intense uh colors and it was still the same story. It was them just saying the lines instead of singing them. I probably like it the exact same. For me, and that's the that's the I think that's the key difference between. You and me on this film. Yeah, for me, I think the the music really just like puts this movie over the top. Yeah. Um, Even if it was like a similar soundtrack, but just people aren't singing. That that I might still if it if it still had the jazzy soundtrack that might work. But I just it, the story is so slight. You know, it's just young love goes wrong. Fast forward a couple years. Yeah. You know. Like, I've seen that in a million other movies, you know? Yeah. Um, I think I, I... And those other movies that do that always have young love goes wrong in this exciting new way, or this is, like, the most rote version of that, and I think the, the way that the story is presented is what makes the movie work for me so well. Um, and... It feels like the the, like... It feels like um, Demi is sort of like, okay, movies are lights and sounds, so I'm going to have the most lights and the most sounds all the time. What does that mean? The most saturated colors, 
the most meticulously constructed sets and just music because that is like you know that is that is like the most joyous expression of sound you know yeah music's better than talking so just do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> no this is the thing of like i don't think this movie would be remembered the way that it is if it wasn't an opera where everyone sings yeah yeah but also i just know in my heart that if people <laughs> if everyone wasn't singing i'd probably like it the exact same amount um, and this, it's just a weird, like, it's weird for me to, like, fully understand that this movie is better because they sing. Mm-hmm. And yet, for me personally, I don't think it changes anything. Um, and that's, it's just weird to sit in that spot of knowing, like, no, this movie, like, probably would not work as well if people weren't singing. It wouldn't be remembered. It wouldn't be as, like, coherent and cohesive. And yet, in the moment of watching it, if people were delivering the lines, if everything else was the same except they were just saying... The lines instead of singing the lines. Mm-hmm. I would still like it the same amount. You know what's um, a specific moment for me that hit with this? It's very early on. They're having the financial troubles with the store. And the mom is like, um, we have, like, the Jean-Viev is like, oh, well, we could, you know, sell some of our possessions to get money to pay our debts. Um, and the mom is like, we have nothing or whatever the fuck she says. Like we have nothing to sell. We couldn't possibly, she's wearing pearls. She's wearing this beautiful new dress. Like the, it's a wide shot. You can see their whole apartment, like adorned with like antiques and like all this beautiful stuff. And they go into the bedroom and she's like, well, I couldn't give up these rings and I couldn't give up these like jewels. And I, I guess I could maybe give up those earrings no, 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 I could never. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, like, they're, they have so many things. The mom's just bad at money. And, like, I feel like if this was in dialogue, um, it would have, like, I would have been, like, are they in on the joke? Like, the first time it happens. And then, like, as the scene went on, and like, oh, the movie is in on the joke. Whereas... Because she is singing, we have nothing we could possibly sell while wearing these pearls. I'm like, oh, the movie is in on the joke. The movie knows mm. how sort of like uh, histrionic was the word that came to my mind, but I don't really want to describe woman, women in that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, melodramatic, maybe. Uh, melodramatically bougie. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um because it is Yo. just some rich white woman shit. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, the way she's like, we'll be out on the streets. We'll have nothing. Girl, you will not be out on no goddamn streets. Yeah. <laughs> like at most you just sell the shop and buy a smaller place and then find some other work. Yeah. You will get a, you will no longer, like it is literally like the, <laughs> the crisis Marx describes where like the bourgeoisie will do literally anything to, to not have to be the proletariat. Yeah. <laughs> Their greatest fear in life is becoming the proletariat. Yeah. Um, and she's Jacques awesome. Demi, low-key yeah. Marxist. Just like a little... Just a little... <laughs> uh, just, a little just a little hint. Um, you, you know what this film did make me think of? Hmm. You're going to laugh at me. Sure. Can you guess what I'm going to say? No. Nana? Well, more broad, honestly, more Paradise Kiss. Uh-huh. But 
like Yazawa I and some like tropes of that kind of manga. Yeah. Um, and in particular, Paradise Kiss, because there's like, I feel like Nana in its punk aesthetics. I just typed in Paradise and not Paradise Kiss, and that is not <laughs> going to give me what I want. Um, the aesthetics of Nana are more infused with punk, and so often it's like a little bit more of this, um, like fainter colors mm-hmm. are used in a lot of the covers. Uh, there's a little. For a lot of the covers, there's a, a certain, like, kind of watercolor, but also, like, a little bit grungy quality to it. Um, Paradise Kiss is just about, like, high fashion. And so it's just people on the, like, most ridiculous hats. Um, and the colors used for the covers and shit are just, like, look at this. This is what I did for the yeah the uh, manga cafe, but just, like, the most ridiculous fucking colors and patterns. Right, yeah. On their, like, dresses here. That's, like, the wallpapers that are all over here and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um but also that it is like in this in this like mode where everything is kind of just infused with melodrama at all moments. Um and then also just one of my favorite things with Yuzawa I manga is that she's really good at doing like weird fourth wall breaking asides. Um but that also aren't just pure jokes because they are like indicative of the way that characters view and think about the world, but also they are doing it in a like jokey way where they're commenting on their position in the manga mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and that kind of captures some of the way that like they'll be doing the song and then they're kind of aware of the whole joke. Mm-hmm. The people singing it are aware it's, of the joke. I think they strike such a good balance of like, I think the movie is in on the joke. I think maybe, like, some of the actors might be, like, smiling, like, ah, we know how, like, over the top this is, or whatever. But, like, that's never in the dialogue, which I think is, like, such a, like, a fine line to walk of, like, ah, like, you can sort of, you can still sort of tell we're all in, we're all having fun with this, even as, like, you know, no one's acknowledging it, like, in the text, let's say. Yeah. You know? But, um, I mean, none of it is as funny. Do you know the funniest joke in all of Paradise Kiss? I think it's a thing I'm thinking of, maybe. It's the the sex scene. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Where, uh, for people who did not listen to the Manga Cafe on Paradise Kiss, where Em and I both really love this part. They're, they're having sex for the first time. Uh, the like, main character and George, her boyfriend. Um, and then he's going to come early. And then he blames it on we're out of panels and the chapter is going to end. So I have to come. And it's so funny. <laughs> anyway, I did just use uh, Umbrellas of Cherbill to talk about some more reviews how I because that's you who know. you are. But I mean, it is operating in this like kind of melodramatic romance space uh, and also specifically in the space of. um. This is not like the the Gene Kelly, Judy Garland. They are like they get together and any romantic problems that could have interfered with it also get tightly um, wrapped up in a way where like the other love interests fall in love with each other and just everyone's in love and everything's happy and ends really good and sweet and everybody just loves each other the way that they should and, you know. Uh-huh. You wanted those two to end up together, and then, of course, the the other people are not in any way seriously hurt by them essentially having an affair and then getting together. Um, whereas this is, like, 
No, there's like still like sadness and and pain involved in that. So, which feels more in the vein of the kind of manga that I enjoy, which is not. Mm. It's just gonna end syrupy sweet. It's no like Paradise Kiss ends with them breaking up. Yeah, um, I I thought that this movie was gonna end like syrupy sweet, and I was really yeah, I was really taken with the ending too. Um, I feel like my my rating of this movie in my head would be lower if they ended up back together. Yeah, like I no same. That was the thing that made this feel like you know like oh French New Wave like in my head of like. If this was the Hollywood movie, they end up together. Yeah. I mean, if they if this is the Hollywood movie, she is not pregnant out of wedlock. Uh, yeah. By 1964, I guess Maybe. that is a movie that like that is like a plot line that Hollywood could touch on. Is like, oh, she's pregnant out of wedlock. What will they do? Yeah. Um. But yeah, that that felt like the like the thing that a Hollywood movie coming out this same year could never have done is like they would have ended up together at the end. You know. Yeah. Probably. <clears throat> Um, well, and this also, I always think about this with these sorts of things of like, <clears throat> some of this is that I just studied, like the idea of realism in film a, mm-hmm. a good deal is part of what I find. I, I think that like the relationship between film and reality is really fascinating in that, uh, it is a medium that like largely depends on the creation of fantasy through recording real things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just like a bizarre interrelation that exists um and so one of the things though that like my perspective on reality in cinema is that uh at once literally everything that you see on the screen is real Mm. um even weird special effects are still like a part of the reality of the production of it uh and at the same time there's no true reality in film because all film is constructed in some way. Yeah. All film operates in prop as propaganda in some way. There's no way the more that you are insistent that the film that you're creating is a representation of reality, the more that you are selling a story as something other than it is, which is just like a a fake thing that has been constructed. Right. I even was... even documentaries are constructed in some way, are, are like a false reality in some way. Nora was asking me a little bit about like Dogma 95 and like Cinema Verite. Those are different things, but I yeah. was sort of, part of what I was doing is like clearing up the difference between those two things. And it was like, Nora immediately like was like, well, I guess like the Cinema Verite doesn't even really make sense because you would have to have like people who were not aware of the camera, you know? Yeah. Like... For for it to truly be like oh we're just observing you life. need like hidden camera shit yes which then has its own ethical quandary yeah like n- then you the filmmaker who are like presenting this for other yes. people to watch are creating sort of like a moral dilemma but the the cinema verite technique usually involves a great deal of just constantly filming people uh-huh. in a way where you hope that at some point they stop kind of behaving like there's a camera always around because they've gotten so used to you mm. um. Like that's part of the that Bob Dylan documentary. I'm forgetting the is that don't look back. There's one that's the like don't a very, look back. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that just an unprecedented amount of being able to be around him and mm. filming in a way that nobody else was allowed to? Yeah. Uh, where at some point people drop their guard around the camera. Here's the sort of weirdo I am. I thought about rewatching Don't Look Back for this week just because. Not... I mean, it's a good documentary. 
I know. I just am like, am I weird? Because I just care about yeah. Bob Dylan too much. It's not that yeah. I care about documentary. It's that I care about Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's also a good Bob Dylan documentary. I should re- oh. What I should really rewatch is um, I'm Not There. That's a fucking movie. Yeah. Have you ever seen Death of a Salesman? Uh, or, d- or is it just salesman? You, you, yeah. I don't think you're salesman. talking about Death of a Salesman, which is a play that sucks. Um, you're um, talking about sales, like the. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, salesman is just through it. Yeah. I always, I always, because the play sucks. Um, the play just, sucks so bad. Yeah. Um, and so I just don't even really think about it. And the movie is about like the the death of salesman as a profession. I, I heard about this a couple of years ago. I think probably in the like second or third class where I had to read Death of a Salesman. Um, sorry, I just I hate Death of a Salesman. I hate yeah. Arthur Miller. <laughs> um, anyway, I I have heard about this movie and really want to watch it, but I never have yeah. gotten around to it. Yeah, it's just salesman. It's a it's a great one too, where they were just like with this guy constantly. Um. And it's incredibly depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also at some point, I think you would enjoy even more. We should watch The Good Times Are Killing Me, which is a similar thing where they are just spending enough time with a guy that at a certain point, he just starts opening up about like how his way of life and like what he conceives of as his job and everything that he's done is just not going to exist anymore. And he's just like in absolute despair about like the loss. Of... But it's it hits even harder for me. Uh, even though I think it's not quite as like well made of a documentary in the good times are killing me because it's literally a man like having a breakdown about like Cajun culture is vanishing. The kids don't speak the language anymore. Mm. Um, like people aren't going to care about me playing fucking accordion mm-hmm. in like so many years, mm-hmm. you know, people I are just going to say that accordions are stupid instruments or whatever. Um, I would love one of these days to do, and I don't know that this has to be part of the, this could definitely be part of this podcast, but it could just be a thing that I do on my own. I would love to do at some point a like crash course on like documentary because I have, I have seen some documentaries for sure, but it has more been guided by, oh, this is a documentary about Bob Dylan. I like the music of Bob Dylan. I will watch this documentary, that sort of thing. I have not often in my life been like, I will watch a documentary because I am in the mood for watching a documentary. Like, I have not really engaged with documentary as a form of filmmaking, more just, you know, the subject matter. Basically, all of my films have been to some degree operating in a documentary space, at times more experimental when I was in Mm -hmm. school and then when I was like working at a film or a video archive. It was more straight documentary stuff, but like... And that's, I think, also why I'm just fascinated. So this is the whole thing that we got onto this tangent, is I think a lot about the relation between film and reality and the way that we construct mm-hmm. what we define as reality and that, like, what is it that makes us say Umbrellas of Cherville ends with they don't get together and it's about the sadness of, like, oh... Both of them really loved each other, but the circumstances mean that they are both of these other people, and those people also are these genuine loves that they have, but also there's, like, this pain of, like, this first love that is lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do we say that that is more realistic than the one where they just get back together? Mm-hmm. 
Which also happens in reality. Yeah. Both yeah. things happen in reality. Yeah. Um, I, and yet me... I read uh I read Kaze-san, which is just this light, fluffy thing about like two lesbians and the the highest stakes are like, oh, we're gonna graduate and go to, you know, like university and are we gonna stay together? Am I gonna go to Tokyo with you? And if I don't, then um as the race relationship over and then of course she fucking goes to Tokyo. Like for for and it's for me, I'm just like, okay, this is just the most fluff, nothing. And then not as a thing is specifically about uh, two people who like go through breakups, go to Tokyo, trying to, well, one, one is with, in a relationship, goes to Tokyo and gets into a breakup. The other one has a breakup, goes to Tokyo and then they get back together. Um, but then like all of the pain of like love lost and relationship stuff. And I'm like, oh, that one's more real. And that's, that is itself a genre of reality that I've constructed in my head about what reality means and that reality is a thing that is sad. Mm-hmm. That like reality is inherently going to have a sad ending. Hmm. And that is a narrative that so many of us have. And I don't actually know if it's true. And I try to like resist it in myself. But also I watch Umbrellas of Sherbo and I'm like, oh, that was a more realistic musical than Summerstock. Well, for me, it's not. <laughs> I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not refuting anything yeah. that you're saying. To be clear, I think you're like totally on point. For me, I do think the reason that I, the ending of Umbrellas of Cherbourg works for me so well is not necessarily that I perceive it as more realistic. I think you're right that like I do perceive it as more realistic. But the thing that for me is just, ah, like, you know, thinking about this movie situated in 1964, like, you know, film over the past 50 years has become an industry. And at 1960, like in the 60s, you see that industry go through these major shifts. And in the 50s, you had the most sort of like rigid version of that industry where, you know, like I watched like Niagara today and all the people who don't do crimes make it out of that movie alive. All the people who do crimes die in that movie, you know? Um... Like, it is so rigid and it's sort of, like, moralistic, like, view. And so the thing that, like, lifts umbrellas up for me is not just that I perceive this as more realistic, but also that I perceive it as, like, resisting that, like, highly, like, morally, like, prescriptive, like, this is good, this is bad, like only like the only valid form of family is like a biological mother with a biological father, you know? Yeah. And like this movie just like pushes back on that in the final moments and like finds a, a resolution that is like satisfying and interesting and complicated, you know, yeah. instead of the most simple, like they get back together. Yeah. They well, get back together. And... and then we just stop caring about the other two characters in the movie. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think that's also what I'm, part of what I'm responding to here um, and part of what I just find fascinating then is I felt for a while, like there's a pendulum swing happening mm. around specifically like the turn against gritty as an aesthetic, mm. which is gritty is the codification of um, movies have sad endings and that's more realistic. Realism is when things are sad yeah. and dark and depressing yeah. and bad things happen to people for no discernible reason. Right. And, that has now been become codified yes. into a, like 
a, a formula yes. into a way that like movies are constructed and think of things. Like I, I in think a way a... where now sometimes it is exciting when something will push back against that. Yes. But I don't think it has fully reached the point where people then watch something that has this happy ending mm-hmm. that's coming out and then says, Oh, that's more real. And that's what I find fascinating. Yeah. Is that like, there is a recognition that a, the gritty aesthetic is not real. Uh-huh. But we haven't like fully, I feel like there just hasn't been the, quite the same definition of like what is real. There is other a than of... this like push into reality TV space, which people very quickly learn is not real. I think most people are highly aware that the reality TV style is not real. There's a sort of like, we all recognize now that like the darkness of say the dark night is just as put upon as the like lightness of Iron Man or whatever. Yeah. Not my best pull for very light Marvel movies. Spider-Man Homecoming, you know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but like, there's no, there's still no space in like the American, like uh, Hollywood, like anything other than like the most dark or the most light, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and then like, I guess the part, there still exists films that often aren't going to be in the main Hollywood right. system that people are going to look at and say, oh, that was more realistic. Yeah. That felt more realistic. That felt more true to like life to me or whatever. But I feel like that's still, maybe there's a push that's happening now that is in the space that I think like Umbrellas of Cherbourg is of mm-hmm. like, there is a bittersweetness rather mm-hmm. than just like pure darkness. I have like a point that's like, Kind of related, but also kind of totally different. Um, and I'm trying to, like, figure out how to tie these things together. Which is to, to bring it back to, like, I was talking about Wes Anderson earlier. One of the things that I find so interesting about his movies, you think about... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll grab the French Dispatch. I feel like people have not seen this one as much um, as maybe, say, Grand Budapest. But I feel more having seen it more recently, more familiar with the French Dispatch. But I think this is also true of Tenenbaums and Grand Budapest and a couple of his other movies, that he is sort of like dealing in these constructed realities in the same way that um, Umbrella is, or Cherbourg is, that he's like very deliberately like, you are you are entering into a fantasy world, you know? Not like orcs and elves, but like this is a constructed, you can see the construction, yeah. you know? Um, the construction is front and center. And Wes Anderson movies, the French Dispatch has this whole sort of like, there's the framing device of um, they're the newspaper. And then they're like, the three main parts of the movie are stories that are running in the newspaper, basically. And so you, and then you will get even then like, oh, intermixed like, the writer writing about himself versus the story he's covering. And so you get these like layers of reality that feel like kind of postmodern in a sense of like, where does the reality and the fiction begin? You know, in the French dispatch, all these people are writing for newspapers. They're supposedly writing nonfiction, but you can see in the movie so clearly that this is all fictional. There's an animated sequence like that is the most fictional, you know? Um, and, and like the, this dealing with like what is and is not reality, and and I really appreciated Umbrellas of Cherbourg 
um, not dealing with that <laughs> at all. Um, and, 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 you know, I picked the French dispatch too, because I really, really like that movie. Um, like I'm not complaining about any of those things that I just talked about with the French dispatch. What I'm saying is the, the thing that was so refreshing about, um, uh, umbrellas as compared to, to more recent films, literally operating in the same aesthetic space was the ways in which it like embraces the simplicity embraces the, um, like, um, uh, 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 uh like we we're just telling the story. Like, and it's going to look silly. It's going to look oversaturated. It is going to look melodramatic. But the story is just the story. And there's no sort of meta meta text within the text, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, the closest you get is like, oh, I think the actors are having fun with this. That's, that's all you're going to yeah. get, you know? I really appreciate it. Just like other stuff that I have come to appreciate from later films just being sort of played straight here <laughs> yeah um i had a moment where i'm like it is like interesting to me mm-hmm. that we got into this conversation about reality in film in a movie where everyone is singing along to a backing track of jazz music <laughs> oh another thing i wanted to <laughs> like talk- there's also but i i think that like was anderson is a good comparison point here mm. of like there are these elements of reality that exist in like the nature of the story. And yet the presentation has this like more unrealistic um, bend to it. Uh, Cause one thing I, I always think of with Wes Anderson um, is this like intentional playing with it of the way that stuff is shot always reminds me so much of you look at old photos from the past where there was not fast shutter speeds. And so you had to like, sit and stand and look straight at the camera and Mm -hmm. you'd probably be there for a few minutes Mm -hmm. to get the exposure. Um, And so everyone just looks like stiff because they're just standing. They're all straight at it. Uh, There's such a like straight on angle with so much of how Wes Anderson shoots things. Um, That really reminds me of that quality of like people are kind of like placed here, not doing much. Um. But also those photos are still just real people. Right. But then we see photos where people are lounging around because we have faster shutter speeds now. And we're like, that's more real. Right. And right. Then, yeah. Um, I think some of his like shooting style mm-hmm. um, does that, which this movie doesn't do quite as much. But there's like a very clear like blocking of things. And yeah. Sets and things. The, Demi is not as obsessed with like the sort of like... Almost to his detriment, in at least in some of his movies, like I think Moonrise Kingdom, this is working to to Wes Anderson's detriment. Like his obsession with these sort of like orthogonal shots, where you have like like the the background is like one like single like layer that is like sort of perpendicular to like the subjects, you know, like th- this movie, like. You can have angles. You can sort of get yeah. get people in three quarters. You yeah. know, imagine not full profile constantly. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just remembering one of my favorite like little weird moments in this, uh, which is when they are like walking with the bike back to his house, and they're just like clearly being dragged along on a like dolly. 
Yes. And yes. It's so like. There's no oh, explanation. It's so for it. good. It's just like this injection of just like no, we're not going to have them actually like walk and talk. We're yes, gonna... like they're going to stand on something that will be pulled. Yeah, you know, and just move to the next space. Yes, um, it it's was great. so good. It's so good. Um, how do we want to rate the stairs for Umbrellas of Cherbourg? So, is it just the one that's like in his home? As far as I can remember. Yeah, which I think is like a apartment complex. So I think like yes. the the nurse, I don't even know if she's a nurse or just a neighbor who's like constantly checking. She seems like a nurse. Yeah, I, I think she's a nurse. nurse. Yeah. Um, but because I think she's just like a neighbor in the building yeah. as well. Um, the one that Guy ends up eventually marrying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he will like go park his bike um, and then will go up the stairs to his, his all blue room. <laughs> he lives in the bluest room. Yeah. Where he really blew her. <laughs> he did blow her. Um, um It's so fitting that it's blue for this episode in our little spreadsheet. Anyway, um I wanna say like a C for that. Like yeah, yeah like you you turn in your assignment. Maybe even C minus, but I don't know. Feel like very like straight down the middle with this one. Yeah, I was looking down the quality of sterile and I'm like, man, we've all been like mid for a while, and then I saw that third man, and I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> we had a good one in there. Oh, well, also we keep hitting like really good ones in the other movies we talk about, and just mm. not like the main segment. Just not nothing's really like floated our boat lately. Yeah. But I, Guy really floated uh, Genevieve's boat. Genevieve. Whatever. <laughs> Do we have questions? We did not get any questions because we put out the. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, I checked this now. I checked 20 minutes ago. That's 20 minutes that Joao <laughs> could have sent in some nonsense. <laughs> Something about Anno or some shit. <laughs> if Anno directed a musical, what would you want the subject to be? Did he already do this? Has Anno made a musical? I'm gonna Google this. It seems like the kind of shit he would do. I need to do Hideaki Anno because if I just do Anno the musical, it's gonna be. Um. I don't know if he did a, a musical. Hello, podcasting cat. I could totally see him doing it, like especially in his like love and pop era. Mm-hmm. What Gunbuster musical? Oh, just like one of his previous works? Oh, I mean, whatever. Shin Ultraman is a musical. I I don't know. Fucking whatever. Yeah. Um, Anna's doing Shin Kamen Rider, and it's a musical now. That would actually be kind of sick, honestly. City City Pop musical with like... Yeah. Oh, I've got it. Aim for the Ace. I want Anna to do an Aim for the Ace musical. Um, <laughs> okay, I should clarify that. I want someone to make an Aim for the Ace musical, yeah. and Anna is the only person who would do it. <laughs> no, like, uh, Miga Takeshi would do it. and Takeshi That would be would a different fucking That would be a different movie. film, and I would love it, because that man also did... It's not going to be, like, his gross-out weird shit for that one. That's going to be one where he's just, like, 
playing the hits. He's just like, <laughs> he's just doing the stuff that you want. <laughs> you know? He doesn't all do weird movies. It's just the ones that people in the West care the most about. Shin... Sometimes he just does a Phoenix Wright movie. Shin Karikano. I think it would be Cutie Honey. <laughs> I've watched so much Cutie Honey, I realized this recently. I've watched like basically all Cutie Honey that exists. Hmm. Aside from the the anime that he directed. Because hmm. he did um, this film, which I have. It's a tokusatsu film. Um, but he also did this OVA. Um, I think this was the one. No. Re-Cutie Honey, this is the OVA he did. This is the only Cutie Honey thing I haven't seen, I think. I've seen all other Cutie Honey stuff. Hmm. I used to have a weird affection for Cutie Honey, but I want him to do it because it would, it would also just be City Pop and it would be about a, like, magical girl that is the thing about it is that it's like a little bit horny for her in a way that a lot of magical girl stuff isn't quite that horny because it was written by a dude i think right uh even like in its origins (laughs) uh yeah it's going to guy oh okay i just thought you were just like subtly like uh ikuni not a dude (laughs) I thought that's what you were getting at. No. I thought you were just going full Fujo on me. Fujoshi, sorry. Yeah. I don't know why I said Fujo. People shorten Fujoshi to Fujo sometimes. That would be something that I would type, but saying it out yeah, loud just it, felt weird. It does It does feel weird. Um, but yeah, that's my answer to the, the Zhuo question that you invented for me. <laughs> it's Cutie Honey the Musical. It'd be what fun. I, what I want is aim for the ace musical. Uh, what I absolutely don't want would be Gunbuster musical, but I feel like that would be, I don't know. Yeah. There's ideas there. Yeah. You know what's fucking sick is Gunbuster. I've never seen it. You never seen Gunbuster? Hmm. We should check. We should fix my that. my like I watched like Ava and then just like weird pulls from Anna that most people never talk about. We should watch Gunbuster. Okay. It's like movie length, you know? It's like six 20-minute episodes. Wait, do you mean like for an episode of the podcast? Oh, I don't know. Because that's a very different thing. I would assume that if we did it, it would we would talk about it and it would go into the Ghost Divers feed. Yeah, especially... I've sometimes wondered what you do with like really... The big thing is that at some point I might do a... Um, like a season that is short stuff... Because I don't want to do an intro and a question bucket when it's just going to be literally one discussion episode. I guess what I'm saying is... But, like, could do, like, Fooly Cooly and Gunbuster and some other, like, six-episode OVA. What I'm saying is you should watch Gunbuster, and within a week or two of you watching Gunbuster, I should rewatch Gunbuster. And we could perhaps do these things at the same time... Or we could do them separately. But you should just watch Gunbuster. I really like it. Okay. That's my pitch. Is It's good. You should watch some Cutie Honey. Sure. That's fine. I keep wanting to read um, some Go Nagai stuff. But I'm a fucking weirdo. Because um, I don't want to read... Um, I have a weird... Um, like... Oh, I'm not going to read Devil Man. People talk about it too much. I want to read Violence Jack. <laughs> Yeah. So I might, re- I could maybe read Cutie Honey as a like, oh, that's like a normal person thing for me to read. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
do kind of want to read Violence Jack, though. That does sound like you. Yeah. The thing is that I know that Violence Jack has some tenuous connections to Devilman, and also I know that my wife very much enjoys Devilman, so I should just read Devilman. But also I think there's spiders in there, and you don't want to look at those spiders. If I tell you that Kitty Honey is kind of gay, does it sell you on it? No, because, like, all manga and anime is, like, kind of gay if you look at it the right way. And not, not, I mean, like, oh, I just mean that, like, I am constantly hearing about, like, oh, like, like, Nana is is gay, kind of, <laughs> you yeah. know, like. It is. Like, it's, like, gay. Okay. okay. That's more gay than I thought. Yeah. Um. It's gay. Let's do plugs. Yeah, we're we're way off track here. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at Fox Mom Nia on Twitter or co-host. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. You want to talk about ghost divers? Yeah, we have there's this podcast called Ghost Divers that I do. Um, it's an anime podcast. We were just talking about it. Uh, it's on the Export Audio Network. You can go listen to it at exportaud.io/ghostdivers, um, or you can just type in Ghost Divers into whatever podcast app you use, and you'll probably find it. Uh, unlike this, do we want to like make ornate stairwells av- available in any of those feeds, or is this always just going to be a I don't know. On the DL. This is like, I always, we use so much copyrighted music that like all the. Yeah. But like. Our theme song is <laughs> Mel Lugosi's Dead by Bauhaus. The the actual thing is that like, we need to make the website because I, ju- I just, I really, really, really like Pinecast for certain things, but it's been driving me kind of nuts lately. So we need to just make the website. And I think in making the website, we can sort of like redouble check like oh this is all on itunes and google play and stuff and even if it's not on spotify like who cares about spotify yeah you know i would like things to be available on every app other than spotify but like i just am too busy to like actually invest time in making sure that that's a thing you know yeah or or if i was hard set on we are going to stick with pinecast long term like I would make sure that that was a thing, but I have known for several months that we were going to fully or partially migrate stuff to Squarespace. And so I'm just like, I just have to like do that part first before I can worry about the other thing. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, you can find me on Twitter at a underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host at a You can find um, all my podcasts by going to exportodd.io. You can give us a dollar a month, and you can get early access to this podcast, to Gotham City Limits, to Bag End Book Club, um, to other podcasts. Or you can give us five dollars a month, and you can get Pop Town Funk, a podcast that I do with my wife, who I love very much. Um, and we talk about movies and shows and stuff. Next, we will be watching a fairy tale movie. Fairy tale? You ask? Like Red Riding Hood? No, fairy tale. T-A-I-L, that anime that's, like, as long as Naruto is and supposedly very popular, but I've never known anybody who likes it. So, um, not, I have, I have no, no, T-A-I-L.
No, I'm pulling up the oh. the Eurovision song, which I can't remember if it's A L E or A I L. Do you know this? It is no uh, A L E. I don't know. I literally know nothing about Eurovision. We'll finish this recording. I'll play it anyway. You kind of we got on a tangent. The thing I was gonna also say with Ghost Divers is one, we're doing Bacchano. You're gonna be on for uh, Lane next. We're actually recording those like currently. Um, but the big thing I was going to say is go listen to the bonus episode of Manga Cafe Volume 2, where Em and I talk about Paradise Kiss, a manga that I talked about previously. Anyway, let's get out of here. What do you say? Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real.
anyway, the thing I was gonna say was that like, so you've been not a brain for a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and for most of your uh, not a brain, <clears throat> it's been on Twitter, and I see screenshots on Twitter, and I don't know if this is you. I think it's probably me, and I think it's probably the way that Twitter is designed, and I think it's probably just like, I have lots of friends who get lots of hyperfixations and post screenshots of things, mm-hmm. and I have tuned my brain specifically so that like, oh, you know, I love KB, they're posting about some visual novel I'm never going to read, I just scroll past it, you know? Yeah. I- uh, sorry, Kiwi, if you're listening to this, I've definitely muted some of the accounts that you retweet from all the time. <laughs> like, the ones that are specifically just not even art, it's just, like, text from a thing that I'm not gonna read. Yeah. Because I just... Well, and, like, this this is not specifically about KB, because you post Nana, yeah. and I just scroll past it, because I'm like, oh, I'll read Nana at some point, scroll past, scroll past. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure I post about, like, random Star Trek episode and people who are not watching Star Trek are like, I'll scroll past, you know? Yeah. Shit like that. So I specifically set up media piles so that I can post to this shit. And uh like people can opt into having that in their feed. Right. Well, so now that co-host is a thing, co-host sort of makes those images like, or, or the presentation of all those things so much more pleasant. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like I'm always. I'm just gonna say this right now at the top. There's always a part of me that, that's becoming hyper aware of like we are part of a small group of people who got access to co-hosts because we know someone who knew someone who knew someone. Um, Whatever. But I mean, people can still sign up and follow all of our great posts. You can go follow at Nana for whatever you're about to talk about. I'm sure. So I am on the record for multiple <laughs> years now saying that like. I don't like Twitter as a social media platform. Yeah. I explicitly only came... I had a Twitter account for a long time that I didn't use. The only reason I migrated to Twitter is that Tumblr started to suck ass. And then they got rid of the porn. (laughs) Yeah. But Tumblr started to suck before they got rid of the porn. That's the thing that people don't remember. Yeah. Um, So, like... But I've been on the record, like, always saying, like, I like the experience of using Tumblr better than the experience of using Twitter, specifically because I like images, I like, um, and I like the, the mix of image and text posts that Tumblr allowed for in a way that, like, Instagram was never really my jam either, you know? Yeah. So, <clears throat> now that I, I have co-host which really just replicates the experience that I liked so much. Um, I, like, see you post some Nana images, and I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna, like, read the panels that you're posting, you know? And Mm -hmm. I, like, well, and almost beyond just, I will actually read the panels, like, because it is big on my screen, because it takes up real estate, I'm more pushed toward, like, I'm gonna click on that, because there's, like, I just want to take a moment. This was the thing that was so cool... This is the reason I got into, like, reading 60s comic books because of Tumblr, was that I would click on an image and I would be like, oh, I just want to appreciate this image for a second. I don't need the context of the story. I am just, like, appreciating this panel, this page, these four panels, whatever it is. You know? And that is just something that... 
Twitter has never been good at presenting. Like the just the way that yeah. this looks on the page looks better. And, 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 well, you know, part of it is that like. I mean, if I do multiple things, it'll still kind of... Like, if you do multiple images, then it will kind of get put into a grid. But, like, if you do one image as well, Mm -hmm. it's just the image. Right. Like, if you had something that was really wide, it would kind of shrink down. Mm -hmm. But it still is, like, more prominent than... I think the other difference is that co-host I primarily use on my laptop. Yes. And Twitter is, like, so built for a phone. You can do it on on laptop but it it feels so built for a phone yes um, um, in a way that co-host feels really built for co-host a, looks really good on my tablet time. and on my laptop yeah you know um but i mean i mean some of it is like the origin of twitter was just literally text posts everything like people used to do links to images i remember they, i yeah. i was I, yeah <laughs> that was why i left twitter because i was to be like no threading or Cause, anything like because I was on Twitter like way way back when when I was probably too young to be on Twitter and then I found out about Tumblr and switched to Tumblr probably in like 2011 I want to say because I was like oh this looks so much nicer um, and then yeah probably 2015 ish I came back to Twitter again because it was like one Twitter sucked less ass just as a from a design perspective. Um, and Tumblr started to suck ass, so. Yeah. Anyway, um, or, or, you know, besides your Nana stuff, like, um, like, in the last day or two, like, Nora, Jackson, and KB all, like, have done these posts where it's like, here's an image from, in KB's case, a visual novel, uh, she was reading in, um, Jackson and Nora's case, movies they were watching, like, here's an image, and then I wrote, like, three paragraphs, below it and like that was so much more i i i am a person who does a lot of threads on twitter i can hardly tell a joke without adding a like second tweet you know um and so like oh i do a lot of threads i also recognize that threads suck to read (laughs) that no one really wants to read a thread yeah so i i really appreciated just being able to see like Oh, this is what Jackson watched last night. Oh, this is what Nora uh, watched today, etc. Um, and just getting like a quick little like, oh, here's a couple quick thoughts. It's less like it's less performative than like a letterboxed review or something like that. I feel like when people write a letterboxed review, it is it is like being written to be read by like an anonymous audience, whereas like the stuff that people put on their co-host is like. Oh, my followers who are already people who, like, you know, sort of enjoy the stuff that I post. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's a there's a part of me that... I've written a few Waterbox reviews. I think most, most of them have been just a joke. Yes. For, like, I had one where um, we were talking about uh, Tetsuo. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is a movie about being trans complimentary. Mm-hmm. And then I went into Letterboxd and I did that as the review for Tatsuo. And then for Silence of the Lambs, this is a movie about being trans derogatory. <laughs> um, parentheses derogatory, pr- nested parentheses complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like that movie. I don't like the way that it's about being trans. I'll yeah. say that. Yeah. Um, I think it is derogatorily about being trans, I, but it is a great fucking it movie. It is... Uh, one of the best movies, one of the most hateful movies. Yeah. 
um sometimes this is just an experience you have as a trans person sometimes i'll like listen to music and i just know that person fucking hates me they've never met me but in their soul they hate like everything that i am um, and i'm like, still just like this music's fun this is like <laughs> genuinely like a, a i think a part of like like me not listening to a lot of music for a couple years is like being really into like super duper misogynistic rap music and super duper misogynistic country music yeah <laughs> and like not being able to like reconcile the contradiction <coughs> for a couple of years and now i'm just like whatever yeah whatever um anyway what you what all this is leading to is that you're gonna read that all right well yeah so i've been like fucking well okay so i'm 13 volumes from the end of berserk which mm-hmm. is not that much you know like and it's it, like, I picked it back up. I read like two volumes in one night and it was just like, oh, it's back. I was like listening to Berserk music. I was um, like literally crying, thinking about like certain moments. Um, like the the Berserk brain hit again and I have the momentum and I'm so close to the end um, that I'm going to do that. And then, yeah, like I've just been looking at your Nana posts and I'm, more than I was on Twitter, just appreciating, like, the way in which, like, Yuzawa Ai puts together a page, puts together a panel, um, all these sorts of things. Um, yeah. Those are always things that I have liked about her work, but, like, just <laughs> seeing it here in, like, a larger format than Twitter allows for has, like, reawakened that, like, oh, yeah. I want to read that. I want to read that. Like, you know, I read the first chapter of it and thought it was phenomenal. Um, I pulled up the one where it was a full page spread and opened it and then laughed because it's the one where Hachi is uh, imagining Nana Osaki having yeah. sex with a, another woman. <laughs> and then ends with, I gotta get a boyfriend, which I'm not sure is the takeaway you need to have from this, Hachi. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you did literally, like, just pages previously say, I don't need a boyfriend, I have you, so... <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah, I'm um, not your boyfriend. You're way more important than my than a boyfriend, Nana. Um. Anyway, I know a lot of people can't post on co-hosts, and so this is probably fucking annoying to them. Um, I make good posts on co-hosts, so even if you don't are not able to post yet, you should go check out my page because I've been posting a lot of like screenshots from movies we've been watching or I've been yeah. watching. Um, and I've got a little like library building up on my computer of like oh i can just like post this like sha wu uh screenshot at some point <clears throat> you know yeah um man Sha-Wu. yeah i've been we also i'm sure this is this is probably coming after bella lugosi's day yeah. you're all in the you all are clearly not homophobic yeah you listen to all of bella lugosi's dad so you're hearing this you probably already heard us do the little co-host things but yeah um we set up an ornate stairwells yeah thing and I think the the bit is just posting stairs on there. Yeah, and then I got episode promo. I the <laughs> super annoying thing about co-host, which is not co-host's fault to be clear, is it because I'm like, oh, I want to share screenshots of um the stuff I'm watching. I watch so much stuff on streaming services, and now I'm having to like go and download it onto my laptop. Um, like I have to illegally acquire it so that I can get really good screenshots of a thing that I have already legally watched. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
This is the thing that, like, it's just because I've been doing Media of Pile as well, and there's just some stuff that I watch. If I'm watching it streaming on a laptop, I'll just take a yeah. screenshot of the the screen. But but like like Niagara, the thing I watched today. Yeah, if I watch TV. It's just like well, I watched it on the TV, and then I like went through and I grabbed a couple screenshots, just like quickly skimming the video on Criterion. But that was such a pain in the ass. Yeah, and I was buffering and all that shit. Yeah, exactly. And like, if I needed, I got screenshots that were good enough to post on my co-host account. If I needed like shots to get for episode art, I would just need to go download it because, like, you know, oh, in this frame he's moving. Oh, uh, this frame the you know he's blinking. You know, shit like that. Yeah. Um. I don't think I'm going to say these ones when we do the closeout at the end of this episode. Mm -hmm. So I'm also going to say that, so, you know, there's the main ones that we already talked about, including I have at Nana. I got it, and then I just decided I would start posting Nana stuff there because I'm always looking at Nana pictures. Mm -hmm. Basically, anytime that I'm scrolling through pictures, Mm -hmm. I follow multiple Nana accounts on Twitter and stuff. Uh, Anyway... Listener, you can't appreciate this, but I'm just like condescendingly patting her head. Um, but I also got at Heathcliff, mm-hmm. so people can also go follow at Heathcliff. For mostly, I just do like the days comics, but I think sometimes I'm going to do like classic Heathcliff comics. Yeah. Um, when I think of them, or just like come across. Them. I assume you'll post the bro one at some point. I mean, there are so many bro ones. There are so many bro ones, but you know the one I mean the the. Bro, 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 yeah. bro, bro. Yeah. Um, that could still be so many, but I do I know. know the one you mean. Um, I have one already in the wings. Do you want to see... By the time people hear this, the 4th of July will have happened. Yeah, sure. Do you want to see the one that I have in the wings? I think yeah. if I go to like post, I can do... Um, or no, it's not in post. You do drafts. Oh, I didn't know this website had a... <laughs> this is an edit I made. This is good. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna post that tomorrow. Could you post poop butt for me at some point? Yeah. Thank you. Do you want the original um black and white one from when it first ran, or do you want the colorized version? I want the happened? I want the full color. I think. Okay. I told you my stupid poop butt story, right? Oh, that it came up on like the Ajax or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They do. They do a segment where they like people send in lists of, like, comic books and they have to rank it. And, like, they're both, like, 40-year-old white guys. They basically have the same taste. Like, every time they do this segment, it's like, <laughs> uh, do you think it's above the... Uh, I think it's a little better than that, but we basically have the same opinion. Poop Butt is the only time I have ever heard those two argue about the quality of a story that was submitted. <laughs> Literally, the only time in, like, However many fucking years I've listened to this podcast since, like, yeah. 2012. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I've listened to this show for a long time. Anyway. <laughs> um, literally, the only time was one of them thought Poop Butt was really funny, and the other one thought Poop Butt was fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember I got into recording out, so I decided to start eating some candy. Sorry for the, the mukbang content. Um... This is a complete aside before we, like, actually record the real episode. Um, I had technical problems when I was supposed to join, like, a department meeting. 
mm-hmm. uh, at work. And so I came in the middle of just everyone doing introductions, which I'm assuming there was like one new person and we were just all introducing for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as like it's going through and people will be like, you know, doing the introduction and then it's just like... Your breath smells like licorice now. Yeah. It was just like cinnamon candy or something. Like, at first I had no clue what it was. And then I was becoming clear, like, oh, they're saying, like, licorice and they really don't like licorice. Uh-huh. Or whatever. Um, And so then, eventually it got around to me and I was, like, the last person who got calling because I was missing for half of right. the introduction stuff. Uh, but I had pieced together that people were just saying their least favorite candy. That's what the question was. Uh-huh. It was like your least favorite, like sweet or candy or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and I just listened to a whole bunch of people bad mouth, like, um, you know, candy that might be a little salty or right. like licorice, like black licorice, yeah. all the stuff. And I was just like, it's me. I'm bad mouthing black yeah. licorice. And I was just like, I, I like salty licorice. Like I just started being like, this one's a hard one for me to answer because I like salty licorice. <laughs> Did you know that sometimes they will put the, like, salmiac salt on it to make it even saltier? It's extremely salty. It's just, like, coated in, like, a white powder, and then there's black licorice inside. Um, wow. Yeah. Somebody said that their least favorite candy was Swedish fish, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I can't, that is worse candy than Swedish fish. I can't imagine feeling... That's strongly negative about Swedish fish. I'm like totally neutral. I love Swedish fish. I, I there are other gummy there are other similar candies mm-hmm. that I like better. That's the problem with Swedish fish. Is anytime I could get a Swedish fish, I'd rather get gummy bears. No. No. Gummy bears are so bad compared to Swedish fish. <laughs> I, I mean they're good. They I still- haven't had Swedish fish in like five years. Maybe my taste buds maybe yeah. I was not appreciating the majesty of the Swedish fish. I, the real thing is that I just have like the most fucking Scandinavian tasting candy. I just like gummies and black licorice. The like weirder and saltier the better. Um I just like all kinds of strange gummies. Um Nora you- too. Wait, um, weed Weed gummies. Yeah, it's a marijuana joke. (laughs) Whereas, like, you've just seen, like, Emily will just like buy from uh, Sweden for me, like bags of mixed stuff where it's just all kinds of weird shit. Mm. Um, because they just love gummies in, especially Sweden, but like a lot of Scandinavia in a way that uh, people don't in the same way here. Remember, I also like chocolate, but like, when it's chocolate, I want like a dessert most of the time, mm-hmm. or it's like I just want like a little square of the darkest dark chocolate. Anyway, I want, we are completely off. Any... I want. I like chocolate a lot. I usually like. I want. I like kind of need chocolate a little bit every day to function. It's yeah. fine. Um. Uh. What I always want. Is I want to find the darkest chocolate on the shelf, and then get like the second darkest. That's usually where my sweet spot yeah. is. You know, me too. Because the darkest chocolate on the shelf in this case is Baker's chocolate. It's just a hundred percent. Well, so sure. Give me the one that's like ninety eight or something. Well, I'll fuck that. Yeah. One up. So when you go to the candy aisle, like you always see like the ninety eight percent, and I'm like, ah, give me the like eighty nine. You know. Yeah. I just want the 98%. Yeah. Anyway, movies. 
it's it Don't is funny to, to like me em. that my my favorite candies are either like salty black licorice, which is just like the antithesis of like a sweet treat, mm-hmm. or just give me like pure sugar that has been boiled to a gummy consistency. <laughs> <laughs> just like the two extremes. Movie time, movie time, movie time. Okay. I will mark this because I have to edit this. Yeah. <laughs>